what up, Dopey Nation? It's Brady from Iowa. Figured I'd get in on this rap battle thing. I don't normally rap, though. Uh, in fact, this is most bars I've dropped since uh, I blacked out and lost my bag of Xanax back in the day. Dopey, the podcast about drug addiction and rap battles. My addiction left me slaughtered like a damn herd of some fat cattle. I'm on the path to recovery and I won't stop. Episode 203 was a tie shot. Dave loved the show and I loved him interjections. Chris trying to steal dope from the veterinarians. Speaking of veterinarians, Holocaust. Dude imbibing piss in 18 Need to stop The podcast about dead owls And meth piss And people afflicted with severe mental illness This verse brought to you By Powerade Shout out to Chris Dopey Nation And Dave Toodles This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Silver Lake, Malibu. It was created by our very good friend Bob Forrest, his friend Evan, and their friend Bob. They had a mission to create a place that offered addicts compassion and not control, and that is what Aloe is all about, giving addicts compassion and love. They have amazing, amazing amenities, including surfing, equine therapy, fucking sound bath meditation. They treat dual diagnosis. They offer a very, very comfortable detox, which is critical if you're kicking dope or crazy benzos or booze. If you're looking for a great place to get treatment and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California and you're fucked, I would strongly consider going to Alice. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Healing Appalachia. Unless you live in Appalachia, you may not have given much thought to what life is like there, apart from some vague images of banjos, forested mountains, and the moonshine tradition. If you are an afflicted member of the Dopey Nation, though, you may be curious to know that there are a lot of addicts like you in Appalachia. While there are strong recovery communities throughout the region, greater help is sorely needed, as more addicts die every day. A recent study by the Appalachian Regional Commission found that overdose deaths were 65% more common in Appalachia than elsewhere, and the death rate is particularly high among those between the ages of 25 and 44. Healing Appalachia works to make it easier for those seeking freedom from addiction to find a way out. It is the mission of Healing Appalachia, presented by Hope in the Hills, to organize an incredible day of music, recovery speakers, food, and enjoyment order to raise funds for organizations that support recovery throughout the Appalachian region. On September 28th, the second annual Healing Appalachia concert will be held in Lewisburg, West Virginia. Headlining the event will be Tyler Childers, a storytelling singer-songwriter who just released his new album at number one on the country charts. Along with him are Brian Fallon of the Gaslight Anthem, the Gibson Brothers, Arlo McKinley and the Lonesome Sound, and Sonora May. But perhaps most exciting for the Dopey Nation, it is a chance to see me, Dave, make my debut emceeing the entire event. It will be bananas. If you want to get away for some great music while supporting a worthy Dopey cause, come to Healing Appalachia on September 28th. All-day tickets are only $35 pre-show and $50 at the door. I think they're just about sold out, so act fast. If you cannot make it to beautiful West Virginia for the event, please consider donating to support Healing Appalachia's mission. Details are at healingappalachia.org. 
Healing Appalachia on Facebook, and of course, at Healing Appalachia on Instagram. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon account. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. If you love the show and you want to help out, throw down a few bucks. Donate a dollar, donate two, donate 50, donate 150, or don't. Do what you want. If you guys want stickers or hats, just Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. If you want any of our high fashion gear, go to www.dopeypodcast.com. Here is the show. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And it's an incredibly special day, special episode. I've waited all summer for this. Uh, It's a very, very special guest. She's an actress. She's an author. She's a purveyor of fine sex toys. She's a fashion designer. She's a wife swapper. She's the patron saint for outsiders. She's a Grammy and Emmy-nominated artist. She's a singer and songwriter of such songs as Ron's Got a DUI, Intervention, Fat Pussy, and my favorite, Eat Shit and Die. She's one of Rolling Stone Magazine's top 50 comedians of all time. She won the 1994 Female Comic of the Year. She's a burlesque dancer. She's an addict, an alcoholic, an intersectional hero. She drank Jägermeister out of Anna Nicole Smith's ice vagina, excuse me, vagina. She's in recovery, I think. You're still in recovery, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she's Margaret Cho. Welcome to the show. What an honor. Thank you. What an intro. Thank you. That's a lot of things. That's a lot of things. You're a lot of things to a lot of people. I'll tell you that. That's good. I like that. I think it's great. I think it's it's amazing. I think it's so cool that you've come on the show. Thank you. And um, I guess I want to just start, like, I've watched you forever, or since I was in high school, I want to say. I, I remember mm-hmm. when you came out, and I'm a big fan of yours, and I think you are super Ooh, cool. Thank you. And thank you. I didn't realize that you were an addict. Um, so, like, tell me about how drugs started in your life. We'll just jump in there. Okay. Well, um, I uh, was not a drinker early on. I think where it started was marijuana because um, – the, the fact is most comedians, almost all stand-up comedians are potheads. It's, it's something having to do with the lifestyle of comedy. And also it's just like the drug that allows you to fall asleep in weird hotel rooms that you can while your days away. Um, most comics smoke weed. And so that was like a major social thing. Um, and also, uh, you know, I started in the eighties. So, um, that was kind of the very beginning of rave culture. Right. So, I was doing a lot of um, ecstasy, and it was legal at that point. And uh, wait, so were you were you ecstasy. doing you were doing legal ecstasy? Yeah, in the eighties, where it was sort of a gray area because it was like not regulated because nobody really knew what it was, okay. and so they were using it for like different things, like therapy or massage therapy. Right, <laughs> so that was like a that. Texas thing. I thought like Texas uh, therapists were using MDMA to like get spouses back together. Uh, it, it hits the San Francisco rave scene in the eighties. That's where you started doing it. Yes. And it's a very different sensation from, um, 
the way that uh, Molly is now. Like I, I've done Molly, it doesn't really feel like the same drug. So there's gone through some distinct changes. Well, I what, guess, are the, what are the what are the differences? There seems to be more of a um, like an amphetamine like uh, element to Molly. It seems to be like the um, the structure of it chemically seems to be more like um, a stimulant as opposed to um, the uh, the effects of old ecstasy was almost more of a hypnotic, you know. Um, so that, that's as far as I could discern how different it was. I loved ecstasy when it had dope in it. I loved ecstasy when it was down. That was my favorite kind of ecstasy. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. but like I never, like I did Molly, but I never believed it was particularly the molecule of MDMA. Like I didn't believe any of that. Like what made you think that when you got it, it was actually what they said it was? I think because um, there was not like that amped up feeling of like, there was always sort of, um, there wasn't like a speedy element to it, that it was kind of like this very um, like syrupy, slow kind of yeah. feeling. I mean, later on when I, became I really was really heavily into opiates then you know then I was more yeah that was more my style I'm much a, much a, a very downer person I'm not an upper person the first time I did ecstasy I was in college and I was mm-hmm. with a bunch of women actually I had this friend who was a drug dealer and he gave me ecstasy because I was too cheap to buy it and I wound up hooking up with this girl who was a dance major in my school, and we listened to the Diggable Planet CD, and she rubbed oh, yeah. lotion on me, and it was like the best night of my life. Oh, that's great. That sounds really wonderful. <laughs> she, said, she said, I have velvet pants, and I said, I'd like to feel them, and she said, feel them. It was an amazing moment. What was the first time you yeah. did ecstasy? Um, I think it was at a um, party, at a, a frat party. It was not really a frat. It was at UC Berkeley. And um, so it was like this hippie house called uh, Barrington Hall. It was very notorious um, there. And uh, it was like Animal House. And uh, they, But it was very um, progressive. So they were having a ceremony to um, honor the witches who had died during Salem Witch Hunt. Okay. <laughs> so, they were, um, we were all doing ecstasy and, uh, we were all, uh, kind of talking about witch hunts and, and, um, misogyny. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was incredible. And then there was a lot of Susie and the Banshees were playing and, you know, it was just amazing. And I, I could never really recapture it. The first time is always the best. I know. It really blows your mind, right? It's so funny. Yeah. And you and you grew up in San Francisco, which is like notorious uh, hippie, drug, crazy counterculture town. Um, yeah. How much do you think that affected, you know, your drug taking? A huge amount, because it was like we had a neighborhood, which is the Haight-Ashbury, that was legendary for that. Like, you know, the, you had this legacy of drugs and especially hallucinogenics and you know um it was really a part of the culture you could always get anything um on the street i think you still can of course but um you know it's like there's always something there and and it's almost like you get so used to the idea of like being high that you can't really be there without being high you know totally i mean that's that's the idea right that's that's the myth of the whole thing now, in reading about you, I know you're Korean, and I know you grew up in San Francisco, and I read that your father owns a gay bookstore, but then I also read it was a joke bookstore. So what was the, what was the deal there? It's a gay bookstore, and he wrote some joke books. That's ah. sort of what 
what the it, it, it's a but it was a gay bookstore in um, the middle of Pulse District, which was kind of the more um, kind of like uh, the 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 BDSM leather bear area at that time. Now that's more on South of Market, but in the seventies it was definitely that BDSM so leather bear. Yes. That okay. was that neighborhood. Okay, yeah, I'm not familiar with it. But I grew up in Manhattan, so what the hell do I know about that stuff? Yeah. <laughs> um, now, but you're, you, was, was there drugs in the house? Or, like, how did it happen? No. Like, what was your household like? What was the family dynamic like? Well, they were very straight-laced. My parents don't drink alcohol. They don't... Um, they, they don't do any of that stuff. I think in the 60s, when they first came to America, there was some marijuana smoked, but that was probably about it. You know, they were not really into that kind of stuff. So I definitely was, like, looking for something wild. And, you know, um, in San Francisco, there was so much of that and um, so much of, like, this thing of, like, being a hippie and playing hacky sack and getting stoned. And, and I met Brownie Mary, who was giving... Um, marijuana edibles to AIDS patients in hospice. So she kept getting arrested. She was probably in her seventies or eighties when she started doing it. Wow. And, uh, so she liked a very legendary lady who was like giving out weed edibles so that people could like, like figure out how to deal with their AIDS. And so it's a, it was, there was a lot of activism around drugs that I think was really honorable. Right, especially there. I mean, that's got to be the yeah. town that centers on that. And did you get into yeah. smoking weed or comedy first? What happened first? Um, I think I was mostly a, probably a comedian first because I started when I was 14. But uh, comedy and weed, yeah, go together hand in hand. It's a very um, – it's a relationship that it, it really works. I think that comics um, – well, comics love any sort of mind-altering anything because it gives you a different perspective. Right, and weed makes everything funnier. I mean, if you if if you so. if you're destined to be a stoner, weed makes things funny. Because <laughs> lots of people it aren't does. stoners, and they're like, I just get paranoid. But for me, everything was super funny. I I loved weed. I remember I went to rehab once because um, I was a heroin addict, and all I was upset about was that heroin ruined weed for me. That I couldn't go back. Mm. You know, it was something. Mm-hmm. And now, like, I live with it, and I'm pretty happy, you know, I'm pretty happy, joyous and free, not smoking weed, not shooting dope, not taking pills, not drinking, whatever. But there was a Mm -hmm. long time that I just wished I could have stayed a stoner. Did you ever have Mm -hmm. that feeling? Like, cause you sound like you were, and and how did your, uh, how did your drugs progress and where did they go? Well, I mean, if I could have stuck with weed, I think then that would have been a beneficial thing. Like I, but I just couldn't do that. And then also like in, um, I think in the way that, um, the like world was, you know, you, in, in like the nineties, you were like Gen X, if you're Gen X, you had to sort of like figure out what, what this was about. And so it's a hard drinking time, um, hard, uh, drug time. Um, and then I didn't get into pills until later in the two thousands because, um, the two thousands, you could sort of get anything you wanted online in these like fake internet pharmacies. So then it went, it took a bad turn and I was really abusing a lot of opiates and a lot of benzos, which I think is really deadly. Um, and that's what really led me to uh, a bad place. And then, you know, being a hard drinker on top of that, you know, it's just a matter of time before you die. Totally. I I have a friend. I was, I was on my way. I, I record out of my father's apartment in Chelsea 
And I was on my way uh, to my dad's house, and I stopped and I got a smoothie. I, I'm, like, addicted to these fucking banana, almond milk, ice, peanut butter smoothies. And I got this be- – yeah, it's delicious. I got this beautiful smoothie, and I go out, and I run into this friend of mine who's this musician named Ray, and he asked me what I'm doing today, and I said that I'm interviewing you. And he goes, mm-hmm. oh, I have this friend who was your roommate in San Francisco. His guy, this guy's oh. his name was Yannick. You know this guy? Yes, yeah. And he said <laughs> and he said when I when I knew Margaret Cho, she wasn't so funny because I would come home and she'd be passed out in in the doorway. Is this true, Margaret? I'm sure that's true. How funny is that? Next, How funny is that? I ran so into a, it's so weird. That is so funny. Um It's a small world though. It's a small uh druggy world. You know, like if you're <laughs> around that kind of stuff, yes. I, Not a lot of us. I know, but what are the odds that my friend who I run into today is friends with your old roommate? Yeah. It's just bizarre. Anyway, That's crazy. you blew up in the 90s. I mean, the re- one of the reasons that you're one of uh, Rolling Stone's top 50 uh, comedians of all time, which is just such a fucking amazing honor, is because yeah. you were like a rocket. You know what I mean? You came up with mm-hmm. everybody big. You know, You name a huge comedian and you were right there with them. Um, did that play a part in your addiction, like like being hand in hand with Joan Rivers and Robin Williams and Jerry Seinfeld? And you were even on the Bob Hope special for Christ's sake. Oh yeah, that was great. It's insane. No, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know because none of those those people would they did drugs, you know, like as far as I was around. I mean, I know that Robin did, but I wasn't really around um, him in that in that stage. But like uh yeah, with Joan and Joan never did. No. She drank a little bit, but, uh, and Jerry's not like that either. So it was kind of the people that I, uh, I think like most comics, like, you know, we get very serious about our career and then it becomes like really about your, your show business almost becomes your drag. Right. Um, so, and I think, uh, but it was after achieving some success and then with comedians, you have so much time on your hands, like after you're kind of successful. So you have a lot of the day and the night to kind of burn off. Most of us only work like an hour a day. So the rest of the time, it's like kind of, it's up for grabs. And, and that can be really good or really bad, depending on what your lifestyle is. Totally. Can you tell me how like the addiction sort of crept into that part of your life? Well, it was pretty slow at first. Like I had spent some time sober in the 90s and early 2000s. And then um, I kind of lost touch with it. And then I I I, started, I did a bunch of mushrooms and I didn't die like they said I was going to die. Right. Wait. Hold up. Hold up. You know? Before before though, when you got sober the first time, what was the impetus then? Well, I was with a guy who was um, very. Uh, he was a crack addict, and we would run around like crazy. And um, one night we had uh, peed the bed. But the stain was in the middle, so we couldn't figure out who did it. Uh-huh. And so we were arguing over who peed the bed, and then we realized that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably go get some help. So I ended up getting sober, and he uh, ended up going back, you know, to whatever. But he's fine now. Like, everything's fine now with him. But he, uh, you know, introduced me to a sobriety that I could do for quite seven or eight years. You know, it was actually fine. And But then, you know, it just got kind of dull and yeah. I wasn't really involved and I was like not that invested and so I just did a bunch of mushrooms which um was very weird after being sober for that long to do a bunch of mushrooms is super crazy that was the relapse 
like describe yeah. it. Who were you with? Like what happened? I was with a bunch of friends. Of, I had I just um, given an egg chair. You know those egg chairs that are kind of sixties and they're white and they look like an egg. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. Totally, totally. There's yeah. speakers inside. So I'd given one to an artist, and I went to his loft, and um, we were all tripping out over their uh, crazy furniture. And um, somebody handed me like a Jamba Juice filled like an orange smoothie filled with psilocybin mushrooms. Right. And I just drank the whole thing just because I was like, whatever. Okay. And then, um, you had been completely I, sober up to that moment Yeah, for six yeah. or seven years for seven years. Yeah. And really, and not, not just that it was raw and vegan. I mean, all of these restrictions that I like put on my life crazy, but, um, and then I was really high and it was really weird. It must've been uh, very but, intense, but what about like, you know, Bill W., like the guy who founded AA, in the 60s, he decided he could take acid and still be sober. Like, did you have any sort of myth like that in your head at the time? I think so. And then there was always that thought of like, well, they tell you if you go out, you'll die. And I didn't die. And then I, so I judged the entirety of all of it by that kind of thing of like, I didn't die, so they must all be wrong. Right. I must be able to handle this um, thing. Yeah. So I just, um, you know, and it, and it escalated with a lot of the drugs that you could get online then. And, um, you know, I kept waking up in emergency rooms, pulling out all of like the, the, you know, IVs and walking out like against medical advice, like that kind of stuff over and over. And, um, you know, my marriage fell apart. Um, and then, uh, my life started to really crumble, but it took a, a significant amount of time. So it took about 13 years for it to really kind of blow up. So I kind of paced myself for a while, but for the last like five years or so, it was just got like, I, I wasn't really sure what was going on. Like, you wake up kind of in the middle of things and then you just go kind of go back out again. Right. You're right. walking around like a zombie. Were there so, ever, did you um, have a few years in there where you felt like you were using successfully? Oh yeah. Yeah, Totally. And you were like, I but can do it, this. <laughs> but my, all of, you know, my health was really suffering. My uh, relationships were really suffering. My um, work was suffering too. So it was kind of like, um, you know, I had to sort of keep on reinventing this idea that everything was okay. Totally. And so that, that justification really wasn't working. But I wasn't aware of it. And then my, my friends uh, arranged an intervention, which I was really mortified about. But that, that got me into treatment, which um, I don't think I would have survived much longer. But that's the mythical, that. that's the mythic intervention where you wound up bringing a bottle of wine to the intervention? Yes. <laughs> and they let me drink it in the car, which is good, on the way to the rehab, which I thought was generous. They gave me a blunch, and I could smoke that. Um, but uh, when I got to rehab, I really collapsed, and I didn't get up literally for 30 days. I was so sick. Um, and uh, so I was medically detoxed and then um, I ended up spending like a year and a half in the facility because I really needed it, you know, and I actually really liked it. Um, I had a lot of fun there. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I love being institutionalized. You're like trapped with people. I do. You get to, I like it yeah. too. You get nice meals. You enjoy yourself. It's like lots mm -hmm. of free time, lots of bonding with people. I like getting stuck in elevators too. Like I like being stuck with people that I wouldn't normally be stuck with. I think it's like, that's the spice of life. Um, it is. Can I ask you something else though, before you got better, what was like the bottom like then? Like how, what was the worst it ever was? 
Um, the, well, I woke up and I was in a blackout and I was hanging from my shower curtain rod, like by my neck. I actually hung myself in an, an Ambien and vodka blackout. Wow. But I wasn't sure what was going on. And I was like, I woke up and I was hanging and I really, I, I, I could have died. Like it was a very scary thing. And that wasn't even the thing that got me sober. I was like able to like quit drinking for like a day. But I had to go right back to it. It was like not, you know, that wasn't enough. And and uh, certainly um, that kind of thing should be enough. Totally. So what was the thing that you think made it enough? Like, what was the thing where you're like, I can't believe this? Like, you had you had an opiate habit? You Were, were you shooting dope? Were you snorting dope? What was the thing? No, um, I had a, a pretty serious, like, Roxycontin um uh, which is the one with the 30 milligrams, the little blue ones that right. have no acetaminophen. Um, and uh, just eating those like candy, you know, like they're like ch- children's bear. Right. Like <laughs> St. Joseph's children aspirin, like that kind of like attitude. Um, just tons of them. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably a handle of vodka a day at least, you know, Um that combined with, uh, you know, just, I don't even know how many, um, benzos, like bars after bars of yeah. Xanax, like there's just so much of that. That actually was the worst part of it. The Xanax, the, the benzodiazepines were the worst. Um, I thought I would never be able to detox from that. That was a really hard one. Yeah. I, um, I had the same thing. I loved eating clonopin so much. I liked how they tasted. Like I loved how clonopins mm. tasted. Like I would go downtown in Los Angeles and buy handfuls of clonopin and just eat the handful, you know. And yeah. uh, and I had many many seizures. Did you did you have a bunch of seizures or no? Yeah, and you know what? It would be bad though if I would really laugh. Uh, I would have a seizure. It would set one off <laughs> if I was laughing at something really hard. So I had about five different episodes during um, shows like The Office and Extras. <laughs> Anytime I would watch Ricky Gervais. It would send me to the emergency room. <laughs> wow, that's so, so funny. You you would so laugh funny. you would laugh yourself to death. Like that's an old an, yes. like that was uh that was Roger Rabbit, right? If you laugh, you'll mm-hmm. die thing. Um you know what remind what it reminds me of? I was in rehab in the early two thousands and one of the movies they showed in the rehab was Face Off. And you were oh, yeah. in Face Off. It's like it's such a good movie, and it's the ultimate mm-hmm. fucking rehab movie. If anybody in the na- yeah. in the audience who calls themselves the Dopey Nation is listening, and you're gonna go detox, I totally recommend watching Margaret Cho in Face Off. It's just <laughs> it's, it's really a, fun. It is. It's, it's a fun movie. It's, it's crazy. And would you do me a favor? Like I've been immersing myself in you for a little while now, uh-huh. and. Um, I, that Anna Nicole Smith story is just, I'm sure you've told it more times than you'd like, but it's such a yeah. funny story. Would you mind telling it to our, our audience? Yeah. Well, I, um, it's, uh, I went to her house and I had gone there initially to steal all of her medication, but it was, <laughs> it wasn't that easy. So I went to her house when she was having like this party for, um, this Christmas party for her TV show. Cause she had a reality show. Was that, and was that in between when you first got clean and you relapsed or before you first got clean? That was after I had gotten that, that was after I'd gotten clean 
first time. And then there was, there was like a time of like, it was after like I take the mushrooms. Right. So there was like a little period of kind of like not really diving that deeply into drugs and alcohol, but it was like an opportunity. So I had drank Jägermeister out of the, she had like poured it. It was her and Howard K. Stern. And she had put me in front of this ice sculpture of her body. And then you would like throw a shot of Jaeger into the mouth of her, um, Anna Nicole Smith mouth and it would come out of her vagina. Right. So it was, and, a, it was uh, a naked ice sculpture, just so the audience can follow this. It was a naked yeah. ice sculpture of Anna Nicole Smith's body, and you're with Anna Nicole Smith. Yes. Okay. And she held my head down on her ice vagina. Yes. And uh, so I could suck on the, um, the, the Jägermeister coming out of it. And it, it, the, the Jägermeister had gone through enough where it had completely chilled and, uh, <laughs> and it went right in my mouth. And then we ended up making out, and she tasted like pickles. Which I think is really darling. <laughs> oh, totally. Are you kidding me? Uh, I, I don't know if you know Katz's Deli in Manhattan, um, but, mm-hmm. I, but I work at Katz's Deli, so I'm constantly, ha- I'm constantly handling pickles. Constantly. Yummy. Um, so delicious. The thing I love about the story is it's like you hadn't had a drink in a long time, and then the first drink you have is out of Anna Nicole Smith's icy vagina. It's like, it's just yes. so wild. You know, it's, it's like, it is. I also think like as an addict, like, because all addicts, when it comes down to it, are just, we're all just a bunch of garden variety drug addicts and alcoholics. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you're in a moment like that, which really distinguishes yourself. Like, does, does that (laughs) fuck with your head in a way? I don't know because, you know, the the, the thought is, is that she died in a really terrible, you know, in a very terrible way. Like the the way that I just don't want to die. I don't want to die at a hard rock cafe hotel. (laughs) Like I don't want to be, you know, like under all that chloral hydrate and not wake up, you know? And so, yeah, it definitely like, I think, oh, like two people actually are dead from that party. China, the wrestler, she was there. And Anna Nicole. How did so, China die? China died. I also I think she died from uh, complications from a lot. Of, I think she also had a pretty serious opiates benzos problem, um, combined with um, different kinds of you know mental things that she was dealing with. So you know um, those kinds of deaths to me are very close to home. They hit close to home because. Um, you know, there are people that I, I identify with and that I, I care about. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but when I started, I started this show with this very close friend of mine who I met in rehab. And three years into the show, he wound up relapsing. It was last summer. And he, he overdosed and he died. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm like, I live, you know, I live a nice and sober, happy and free life knowing that, that he died. You know what I mean? And it definitely is an engine for the show because the audience yeah. like became so close with him and he was, yeah. you know, he was this hysterical, beautiful kid. You know, he was 34 mm-hmm. when he died and, um, mm. and it could have been either of us, you or, you or I, you know, it just so yes. happens to be that we didn't die, you know, like right. what, and, and what was the thing, I guess you, you tried to hang yourself, you're saying uh, in a ambient, yeah. uh, alcohol induced moment. And then what was the thing that really clicked that you knew you needed to get better? Like nothing else would, would suffice in your head. I think because, well, when I had to 
to kick opiates and benzos and alcohol at the same time. And I was so sick and detoxed that I couldn't even get up. Like, I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to detox again. Totally. Like if, if I go out again, I really would just do it to die. Right. So I won't have to re, you know, re like discover all of those detoxing feelings. I can't, I can't. I totally, I totally know what you mean. When you checked in, did you know you were going to stay for a year and a half? No, I thought I would maybe be there for like a couple of days. Like I caught, I always thought about, you know, that they do that rapid opiate detox where it takes like 72 hours. Totally. It was my dream. It was my fantasy. <laughs> I thought, yeah. I love that. You know? And I was like, Oh, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so, so like, how did, I mean, I think that's a story in itself. How did it happen that you checked in and you stayed in for a year and a half? I think because I was too weak to actually move. And then I was really, uh, by the time I had detoxed, I was really entertained because I had been on drugs for so long that being sober was kind of fun. It felt like an altered reality because I was so used to being high. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Like, I, I think about that all the time because I go to meetings and, um, you know, and this, the idea that it's a spiritual solution, you know, or it's, a, or it's a spiritual problem, you know, that can only be fixed with a spiritual solution. And I know that when I you know, started using drugs, I was spiritually seeking. Like I smoked weed as a, as a sort of spiritual shortcut. I took acid, I took ecstasy, mushrooms, whatever. In my mind, it was really like pseudo spiritual seeking. Uh, did you find mm-hmm. that to be the same for you or no? I think so. I think so that there is a part of that. And then certainly like, it was also just boredom too, Totally. which is also kind of spiritual seeking as well. It's like, if you're bored, you're just not looking outside to, the world or, or to life. So there was a, an element of that, like just on we of like, what is there to do, you know? Right. I, I, and also just adventure. I know I was seeking adventure. And then the funny mm-hmm. thing is when the adventure gets inverted and your whole life is just craving the same thing so you can control how you feel. And there is no more yeah. adventure. And the only adventure is like death and horror, horror situations because you don't ever get as high. You know, I, I know no. that when I got clean, I knew that I would never get higher than I was. I knew that it was done. Mm-hmm. That was a great comfort to me when I got clean, to be honest with you, that I knew that there, yeah. was, there was not a, a, a higher place. Did you, did you feel the same way? Absolutely. And that, you know, that what is, what is worthwhile really is the peace that you can feel, you know, like that it's like not all the chaos of like having to get drugs to stop being sick and that whole thing. You know, that's really unbearable to me is just the grind of how hard it is to stay high. Yeah, yeah. In my, in my imagination when I was younger, I would say if I had $60 million or I'm 60 years old, I could go back to drugs. But even somebody mm-hmm. with $60 million, it's going to be a fucking effort to stay high, wouldn't you say? Yeah, because there's the acquisition. There's like the getting it. And then there's like how you deal with the tolerance of it. Like you get, you build a tolerance, you can't help it. Like what are you going to do? Like in, you know, all of it, it's like, it's just too much. <laughs> yeah. What was your, what was your recovery? Like, uh, do you still go to meetings? Like, what's it like? Well, it's, um, varied. Um, I do a couple of different things, but you know, I think it's just, um, and now it's much more of a dire situation. Like, cause I can't really, I, 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 I can't, you know, face the idea of like going back. So I try to maintain a good life, you know, I use a different, couple different things, but 
you know, I, I have a, a pretty, pretty big spiritual life. If that is, um, if that sort of makes, makes, makes the peace happen, I think that's what, that's what helps me. Right. Um, and you, I mean, you said that last time when you, you know, when you wound up drinking the mushroom orange Jamba juice, you were like bored with the, with the recovery. Like, do you ever feel like that on a day to day now? No, um, because I have to consciously stay on top of the boredom. Right. You know, and I, I really, I really know that's a trigger for me. It's like being bored is like a really bad place to be. So I really, I'm very conscious of anything that might alter my perspective on what, what my sobriety is. Well, what do you do to stay, to keep yourself from being bored? I mean, it seems to me like when I, when I have researched you, you do so many things like learning Mm -hmm. to play guitar and banjo and writing these songs. I mean, your music is pretty fucking amazing. Um, I really liked it. I mean, that song intervention with Tegan and Sarah, it's, it's so good. good. And I love the Anna Nicole Smith song. I think that is so good. And I think the videos are just fucking crazy, like intensely high production value. Like, yeah. Thank you. Really top of the line operation you've got running. I'm really (laughs) into it. I love it. Um, So like, I'm glad you're glad. That's great. Um, What are you doing? So in in terms of boredom, like you just stay busy. You just, what do you do? Yeah. I just, um, I, I work a lot. I have um, a lot of really great relationships. I have a lot of um, exercise like options that I can do. Um, I travel, I eat, um, you know, I go to shows, I, I see things, I go out and do things, which I never did when I was high. Right. So like, that's the ability to go out and actually experience the world. And that's, you know, like, you know, like, I'm constantly doing stuff and that, that's the way that I kind of keep at it. Totally. I, I saw you on, um, on Jerry Seinfeld's comedians and cars drinking coffee. And it was, I just, it was so warm. It was very warm and and very beautiful. And, um, although it annoyed me that like that thing happened in New Jersey and like they got Mm -hmm. pissed and then you went back. I don't think they deserved you to go back. I think you should have just been (laughs) like, fuck you. You guys suck, you know, but it was sweet. It was also sweet. Like I I love how Jerry is so indignant with comedy audiences Mm -hmm. Do you find that to be how it is? Like where he's just like, he's like, do you find like you're alone against a crowd in kind of the way he talks about it? Yeah. And it's, it's also, it can be a very adversarial, but it can also be really something like, you know, you have that responsibility that you have to be entertaining. That's your whole job. And so, you know, there's, there's like lots of different ways you can go about sort of like dealing with it. But yeah, I love Jerry's attitude. He's awesome. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and like, yeah. Are all did, did anybody drop out of your life like when your addiction hit the worst part? You know, like did anybody bail on you and not come back, or did everybody sort of come back? Oh, everybody came back. And, and like, I think it's like, yeah, that's that's one of the great things is that you know I lost all the bad parts of of my existence. You know, like the people that were really like the lower companions all fled, which is really great. Right. You lose the people that you don't need anyway, and you keep the people mm-hmm. that, that count. Um, yeah. One of my favorite things that I see that you do is when you imitate your family and you do kind mm-hmm. of your Korean impression. 
I, I just, oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's not an impression because you're Korean, but I think it's, it's yeah. super funny. And how did they respond to your addiction? Like, did they understand or was it total? Like, we have no fucking idea what you're doing. Like, what was they're that? Scared. They get really scared, but they're also just really happy that everything is okay. You know? And, um, you know, I, I just lost a childhood, like my childhood best friend just died of an overdose in January. Oh, man. And, you know, my parents were really, I mean, I was just destroyed by it. And my parents were really, really upset, but really scared, you know, that something like that might happen to me. So they always like are very worried about it. But, you know, it's, it's not, yeah, that's not the way that I can go out again. I can't. Well, the fucked up thing is you can, you know, we could. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the whole funny thing. Like when they say, when we say, I can't drink or I can't do this, we could do whatever we want. It's just about, like, you know what I mean? Um, What we choose to do. Exactly, exactly. Um, There was one other thing that I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah. I know for me, like, I have, I just came up on four years clean, which is the longest I ever got. Um, Awesome. Yeah, it's great. But I still find, thank you. I still find weird fucking places that my addiction manifests. You know what I mean? Like, I I mean, for me, the Mm. worst thing is sweets at night. Like, I'm just fucking Mm. consumed with, uh, like, have you ever had a, yeah, I'm just eating everything. The latest thing I've discovered is this chocolate dessert hummus. Have you ever had this? No, but that sounds great. It's really very good. <laughs> um, are there any places yes. that you that you find your addiction still creeps in, like that you don't expect it to, or you just live with it? Do you have that anywhere in your life? I, I live with that. Yeah, I live with it. I live with that addiction to sweets. And um, Billie Holiday used to call it the Chucks. Like whenever you know she would go to jail, she and all the ladies who were there from drug offenses would get the Chucks, which is like they can't stop eating. And they would put on all of the weight that they had lost while they were, you know, doing drugs. And um, in a way, like, that's kind of like, well, it's it's a small price to pay for that kind of, like, abandon and oblivion. I need a little oblivion sometimes. And sometimes that comes in the form of, you know, popcorn, which I can eat heroic amounts of. So popcorn Um, is your thing? Like, what is your, what is? Kettle corn. Oh, that stuff is good. I I, I could eat that. Kettle corn. Yeah. It's so goddamn good. It's addictive is but, what it is, you know? Yeah. You, you can eat it. It's till addictive you... and crazy. It's fucked up, though, because, like, when I got clean, I wanted to look better and be skinnier and be all these things. And instead, like, I'm not. I mean, like, my life is a million times better, but I literally, like, can't stop myself eating. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's very frustrating. It's okay. I know it's frustrating, but it's actually, it's like, you know, I take, I take that over any other like dope sick any day you know totally Are you that, the hopelessness the hopelessness of dope sickness it's like you just you want to die but you're like too sick to even die yeah life without the possibility of dope sickness is like the greatest thing mm. ever and when i the hear cushy place oh yeah when, <laughs> when i hear the stories part of me like forgets how i used to live you know mm-hmm. how much time do you have clean yeah. now I have um, about a little, like about a little more than three and a half years. Yeah, right on. Amazing. Congratulations. So, yeah. Do you ever feel yeah. like that? Like, you, do you ever feel disconnected from your addicted life? No, That's I good. don't think so because I gotta stay close to it because it's like, it's right there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's always right there. But like, I do find that, uh, 
like I, I, ha- I just had a second baby and we just bought a house and I live in the suburbs and like my life is so different than it was that mm. sometimes, I mean, I still have scars on my hands and my wrists and I do a show about addiction, you know, and I go to meetings and whatever, but like my connection to the actually getting high, it seems so, I still have dreams. Do you still have dreams about drugs? Yeah, Totally. Yeah, totally. But I don't. It's like it really feels like a different life. Yes, yes, yeah, it does. But it's also weird too. Like the dreams about drugs that I have are really like they scare me a lot because then I'm like, did I just do that? Yeah, me too. Me too. It's yeah. also crazy that it can be so present in our subconscious. Right. Right. You know, it's all right there. Do you want right to give? There. Would you give us like one uh, more crazy uh, dopey story? Do you have one? Um, or I always put pressure I on people at the end when they don't have one. It's always, it's always like, <laughs> I, I was ODing outside of a really fancy restaurant. It wasn't French Laundry, but it was like that in um, Napa Valley. And I was like out on the ground. Like they put me outside the restaurant on the concrete, like laying down. And I was like fully like probably, you know, flatlining. And I heard an ambulance and I don't know how I did it, but I started running. And because I will not pay for up to twelve hundred dollars for another emergency vehicle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you, you knew that the, you running. knew that there was a twelve hundred dollar bill, and it totally revived yeah. you from the OD. I out, outran the ambulance and ran away from all of the EMTs trying to get me to be, start my heart. And so I I realized, like you know, that's pretty. That's kind of superhuman. Totally. That's like the, the, yeah. the awesome thriftiness of, uh, of, of, yeah. of, of, you know, being an Asian addict. And I can say that cause I'm a Jewish addict. You yeah, know? exactly. It's so thrifty, but so dumb. You know what I loved? I loved on the Seinfeld special when, when Jerry says to you, how great are Jewish husbands? And you said mm-hmm. great because they fear their wives. It was just, it was so perfect. And I think that really yes. like captures me very well. So oh, I love it. I really, 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 really appreciate you coming on our little show. I think it's very beautiful. Thank you. I know it will Thank mean you. a lot to our audience. Um, and we're having, I'm just going to give you an invitation to this thing. We're doing our first live event on October 12th in Manhattan. And I know you're not going to come, okay. but you are totally invited to the first ever DopeyCon. So if you want to come, well. you let me know, okay? Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Margaret. Wonderful. Thank you. Have a good one. Later. Margaret Cho on Dopey. It's a big deal. And now, it was really cool, actually. I had been waiting for Margaret Cho to come on Dopey since the beginning of the summer. Hold on. That was me just checking the mics because I have a new technique. But before I even go on with any of that, I should announce... My favorite person is joining us for the second segment of the show. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Somehow more beautiful on the inside than the outside, yet the outside is ridiculously beautiful. But welcome back to the show, Linda. How are you? I'm good. Hi. You got to sit close to the mic or I'll lose my fucking mind. Hello. Now, what I'm doing now, Dopey Nation, because the sound is going to sound different than the Margaret Cho interview, because I've cut down on the gain. I think the gain was killing the sound. So if it's too quiet, write us an email, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. But Linda, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Are you upset that you didn't hear the Margaret Cho interview yet? I feel very unprepared. Well, what else is new? <laughs> but, I, but I sent you, and she said, 
you were supposed to send me the email with the interview, right. Dave, and I did, but you didn't get it. I didn't get it. You don't look at your email. I don't think I looked at my email. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Margaret Show is amazing. She was incredibly candid and incredibly generous to come on the show. I will definitely be listening to her interview, though, because she's somebody that I'm really psyched to hear. She is a pioneer, a trailblazer. She's amazing. She, she was one of Rolling Stone's top 50 stand-up comedians of, of all, all time. time. Now, but Margaret Show is great. You'll listen. You come on next time. You give us a lowdown. Sure. I have a whole thing for you to do next time. I have, I have stuff coming in, but not for this time. There's other stuff for this time. Do you want to know what's going on? I do. I know that you're a big follower of uh, the Dopey Nation Facebook page. I need you to sit closer to the mic or I'm going to lose my fucking mind. Um, you are a big follower of the Dopey Nation Facebook page. I am. I, I've been a little busy lately, so I don't feel like I'm on um, as on top of what's going on. But I feel like there's some drama going on right now that I just noticed when I was looking at the Dopey Nation Facebook page and I was going to the bathroom. And I was like, oh, there's some, some activity. So do you know what this activity is? Do you know what's going on? So I, what, I, what I saw is that there's some kind of feud going on between... The Facebook Dopey Nation and the Reddit Dopey Nation. Yes, what? but I but somebody made a comment and I was laughing because it reminds me of myself that she does. Well, I think it was a girl that wrote, "I don't understand Reddit," and I was laughing because I don't really know what that is either. And I know you talk about it sometimes, but I don't fully understand even what Reddit is. But clearly, somebody offended. Um, Matt, I think Matt was the one writing. All he this wasn't. Stuff. He wasn't. I don't offended. know. I don't really fully know what's going on, but it looks very juicy. Juicy. I'm gonna. I'm gonna fucking to break um, it down. I'm gonna, you know, educate you as best as I can. Okay. In the dopey nation world of social media, as you know, there's the dopey nation closed Facebook group. Yes. Then there's the dopey podcast Facebook group where I post. Right. Then there's the Instagram group. Right. Then there's the safest place in the Dopey Nation, the Twitter group, which right. is very like... Because no one looks at that. Yeah, nobody really cares. Right. It, a few people, but they're very kind to me. Right. They don't, you know, n- not, not well, too doesn't much... doesn't Twitter have to be short, too? Like, yeah. you can only say so much? Yeah. So, I, I mean, right. Twitter's totally... For, it's like totally built for me. But then there's Reddit. And it's actually built for me. I don't want to hear too much. No, you love the overshares. Okay. You love the overshares. Go ahead. Anyway, um, on Reddit... Chris, like, first found out about Reddit by looking up the opioid Reddit group, and he was like, I don't know, Dave, and this is, you know, it's, it's not necessarily funny now, but I still think it's funny. He was like, I kind of, like, feel triggered because I've been watching these people shoot water into their necks on the opioid Reddit group. I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't look at the opioid Reddit group. Right. And then, um, then there's this guy called Cormac, who's an like an old-time fan of the show, and he does a lot of stuff for the show. He created the Dopey Podcast SoundCloud um, account, and he created the Dopey Podcast Reddit page. And the Reddit page is like balls-to-the-wall, crazy shit. Everybody's anonymous. They're, they're very mean. They're like, if like it was a country... You don't want to go to war with the Reddit page because right. the Reddit page is like the Taliban but of the But do they listen to the podcast? They do. They do. And then they just go on there and say all sorts of stuff. Well, I think the Dopey Nation Facebook page, people are afraid to say anything mean because right. there's like an army that will kill you. But the Reddit page, it's I just guess mean. it's... Well, because it, like you said, it's, it's, there's not this like 
people aren't friends. There's not that everybody's you know anonymous, so they could say whatever they want. Right, and there was a, there was a point where they said a lot of mean stuff about me. You know, like in a, for a, for a while, like it was like the show sucks. Without Chris, the show sucks. Da da da. You suck. Blah blah blah. A lot of just mean stuff. And then recently on the Reddit page, somebody posted Dave is back. So I was very. Oh, that's nice. It was great. It was okay. like it was like it totally made my life. Right. So when I saw the Dopey Nation, I'm sorry, the Dopey Podcast Reddit <laughs> group, they what they were really going against was the Dopey Book Club. Oh, okay. And there there's was, a dopey book club. Dopey reads. Dopey reads. Okay, I didn't know about that. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of elements to this podcast, okay. and and uh, they were saying that the dopey reads is made up of soccer moms who have no, I read that who but, have chem sex yeah. and do Zoom rooms, right? And um, and, and drink spiked seltzer and drink spiked seltzer, which was yeah. pretty fucking funny. Um, and now the dopey nation has declared war Uh-oh. on dopey Reddit. Okay. Dopey Nation Facebook group, I should say, not the entire Dopey Nation. Right. Um, they've declared they've war declared on Reddit, war. and I just think that you don't fuck. I, I just advise anyone not to fuck with Reddit because they don't care. No, I think the Dopey Nation Facebook group's pretty hardcore. I wouldn't want to fuck with them, to be honest with it's you. It's like Vietnam. It's like we go to war in Vietnam, and the fucking. How do you Viet- go at war though? Like, what does that mean? I don't exactly? know. I, like, just, I want to see how the war plays out. I don't know, but Matt, Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll is, is he a, the sergeant? He started the whole thing okay. by posting on the Dopey Nation Facebook page that Reddit's talking shit. Yeah, because nobody knows what goes on on Reddit because it's very underground. Like nobody cares ex- except. A few people, and Matthew is a super fan, so he's like in every right every group, and he's like he's also enjoying making the drama go. And right. and I love this stuff personally. I love that you there's yeah, Dave. This is this is right up Dave's alley. I like feuds and I like beefs. So I um I wish everybody luck. I just want you to know that we're all on the same side. Well, I wonder what it'll look like when there's a winner. There won't be a winner. Like, but how, what would that? What does that look like? There's no one can win from this thing. Right. It's impossible. Because you can't wipe out Dopey Reddit. Right. The, only, the thing that they could go against them, but the Dopey Reddit people are going to like be cutting people's fucking ankles in the bush, and people are just going to be dropping, and then they're going to be shooting Snipers. them in the head. And people are going to like not want to post. I mean, it's, listen, what I, what I. There might be some Dopey Reddit um, spies that have made their way onto the, that's what, onto the Facebook page. That was what was talked about today. Oh, okay. But um, listen. What do they call mole? No. Moles. Moles. Yes. Yeah. What we what we want, what I want, I like this stuff, but I want peace in the dopey nation. Yeah. Peace all, and love. We're all a bunch of fucking addicts and alcoholics and we should be trying to get along. That's that's my my Thanks, Dave. Thank you. As Dave's smiling, thinking this is great. This is great. I love this. <laughs> um before we started, I, I was like, let's get a snack. And uh, and Linda goes. My favorite snack is apples and bananas. No, she says I said to brag, apples and peanut yeah, butter. Apple to brag that she's healthy is because well, you go. He wanted to take a handful of Malamars to chew on. Did, I did. But I while did. he's t- doing his podcast, which would be gross to watch, to listen to. You don't and see to, it. Well, it would be gross I'll for be, you to I'll watch. I'll be watching. Um, me and Nora were at the supermarket um, the day on Sunday. Linda went to see her brother in a big play. Yes. And I had both the children. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you a quick story. I'll tell you two quick stories. Me and the baby is very difficult. So she's a difficult age. She's a difficult baby. And me, the baby, and Nora are at the aquarium. And, and Nora's like, Daddy, can we just get ice cream? 
I'm like, and I'm like, yes, 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 we can. Because it was like, you paid your dues with the baby. It was one, some ice cream. it was one thing after another. And, and so like, I would, I was, my plan was to get Nora a chocolate ice cream and me and the baby were going to split a cookies and cream. Okay. Um, but they put it all together and Nora got really upset. Then we right. separated it and we sat down in this very beautiful kind of plaza to eat the ice cream. And, um, I don't know if this is that funny, but to me it was funny. All sorts of bees start coming around. Oh, my goodness. And Nora, like, loses her mind with the bees, okay? Look, I get, I'm getting messages from Reddit right now. I see that. Um, Nora loses her mind with the bees because she, like you, is just terrified, terrified of bees. Yeah. So the first bee uh, lands on her water bottle, okay? Ugh. So I screw the tap, the cap of the water bottle, and I shake it up. And I kill the bee. The bee's in the water bottle? Yeah. So that's not too traumatic to watch. And Nora goes, what happened? I say, let's just say he drowned. And she (laughs) she thought that was funny. And then then she's like, I'm not drinking it. And I was like, don't worry. Then the next bee lands in her ice cream. And I take my thumb and I fucking... Kill the bee in the ice cream. So I'm sure she started crying. She was then. I then I took the spoon out and I dug the bee out. Ah. I excavated the bee and I threw it on the ground. Horrible (laughs) little dessert. She ate the rest of the ice cream though. Is that maybe that's not healthy? What bee? It's all protein. Anyway, so then we go to fucking. um, We went to the supermarket. I I just refused to come home with the two kids. I just didn't want to be be home. Here with them, he goes nuts. Yeah. So first we went to the mall and we bought a whole back to school ensemble. Yeah. And then we went to the supermarket and Nora's walking down the aisle and she turns the corner and she sees a floor to ceiling Malamar display. And she like drops to her knees. Started screaming. Holds her hands over her head. And she's like, it's Malamar season again. <laughs> and, um, and we're at the checkout and some woman comes up to us and she mm. goes to Nora, you, you made my day today by saying it's Malamar, Malamar season. Malamar season. I know. They bought, you guys bought a, quite a few boxes. Well, it turns out. You that know, it's like around for six months now. If you buy two boxes of Malamars, <laughs> it's two for four bucks. But one box was four fifty nine. Oh, well, okay. But then it turned out that I could have gotten the sale on one, so we're stuck with a lot of Malamars. The point of the story is Linda comes over with her banana and her coffee, but she's eating a Malamar. Yes. And then she looks at me. She feels guilty. <laughs> so she takes a bite of the Malamar where she scoops all the chocolate out. No, I took all the marshmallow top, and yeah. I had to do the cookie bottom. And she goes, I don't like the cookie. <laughs> but I think that's funny. Um, that is funny. So, um, oh yeah, more important dopey news, okay? okay? Something has been happening lately, which I do not like, and I want the dopey nation to really take notice of this, okay? People are sending in voicemails, which I do like, or emails, mm-hmm. to have them read on the show, right? Then I read them on the show, or play them on the show, and then they write back and say, can you take it out of the show, Okay. Right. This happened with this woman recently, and I don't remember what she wanted. I, I've lost track mm-hmm. of it. So, like, if, I don't think she listens anymore because I was so aggravated that she asked me this. Then a guest on the show, a friend of mine, a guest on the show, made me take her episode down. And it was the episode where I told the amazing story of where I w- drove in the wrong car. Oh. So that episode's down. I have to, like, re-edit it and do it. And then last week... There's this dude, I'm not going to say his name because I don't want him to get upset and say, take this out. He sent me an email, right? A couple weeks go by and he comments on Instagram saying, yo, you're slow with reading the emails, bro. 
I'm like, what? Hmm? And then, and then, so the next week, I made sure to read the email. Then you and me are at Panera, and I look at my phone, and it's this motherfucker writes me and says, "Can you take the email out of the show um, after he fucking pressed me after, to put it in?" Right. And you know how how aggravating but this stuff do you, is. Did he? Do you know why that is? Why, why do you think people are, are getting, like, have those feelings after their email's read? They have cold feet, and they think right. that somebody's going to know who they are. Well, I, under, I can understand that. I mean, think about the Lost, what are the, the Lost episodes? It turns out the Lost episodes are forever lost, because uh, Chris's sister found his computer, and they're not on it. Mm. I think there's an external hard drive. I'll always have hope. This is the deal with the, the email. But I can, what I'm saying is I can understand that. I understand that feeling of feeling exposed and feeling like you don't, you know, you, you think it's cool and you kind of want to share, but then all of a sudden it's like, oh, don't do that. I think it happened with you once where you were like, you wanted me to take something down. Yeah. And then, and then you didn't because you right. knew what it does to me. Like, like, right. like if I have to take... This dude wrote back, and he wrote back kindly, and he said, I didn't realize I was such a schlemiel, he said, which mm-hmm. I like the, the word schlemiel. Um, so I haven't decided if I'm going to take his thing out. But here's the point. I'm going to take it out, I think. I, I can't. Right. I and can't. you have to honor yeah. his, his, request. his request. Totally. But I think it's good that you're telling the listeners to please make sure they're 110% comfortable sharing their story on the podcast because it's a pain in the ass, and it also wrecks the flow I mean, it's a whole. It's a whole. Forget thing. that. So the I amount can... of work for me to excavate a finished episode, right. go back in it, take this one thing out, and then repost okay, it. Okay. Well, so now people know. But but so this is what I want people to do. I still need. We don't even have any good dopey stories. Like like dopey emails. Like they're all like these very very beautiful sort of congratulatory like, emails right. instead of like fucked up stories. So I need, you need fuck- good voice, like dopey story voicemail. I have a good one. Cause those are fun to hear. I have a good one to play. Um, also, um, I need story emails, but this is what I want you to do. If you are hedging your bets in your head about doing this, send in an email, tell me in the beginning, you don't want me to say your name. Write it as vaguely as you can so you're not worried that someone's going to figure out who you are, which they won't. Right. You know, just keep change pertinent details, and then we won't have a problem, you know, and, and, and I won't have this problem. Because I've got so many problems. Yeah, we don't need any more problems. No. So here, read this email. Oh, okay. Are you sure this person is going to flip, flip their lid? I'm not sure of anything. Can I say her name? Uh, don't. Okay. Oh, no, you can, I think you can, but This don't. is her name, address, and social security number. Um, Get closer to the mic, though. Okay. Hi, Dave and Dopey Nation. Chris, if there is an afterlife and you're still reading emails, I hope you are living the dream. I'm probably your most devout South Dakota listener, if not the only one. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to know who you are now. I'm 28 and have been afflicted since I was 14. First it was weed and over-the-counter stuff. Then I migrated towards meth and then opiates and eventually heroin. I've been to treatment 10 times plus numerous halfway houses, detoxes, and county jail for just shy of two years. I'm still on probation with 12 years of prison time hanging over my head. Damn. I thought I was special with my 10-time treatment notch in my belt. I guess I'm not that unique. Ha ha. I was introduced to your podcast a few months ago by NPR, and I cannot tell you honestly, and I can tell you honestly, you've changed my view on recovery. 
I've been clean from heroin for almost four years, but that's because I was prescribed Suboxone and I took it like I was supposed to. I'm so thankful for the medication saving my life because the path I was going down four years ago would have inevitably been my death. Let me just... Let me first say I don't want to knock anyone's recovery because we all do it differently. This is just me sharing my experience. I gradually lowered from 16 milligrams to 0.5 milligrams of Suboxone and eventually none. And the and it's like a switch flipped in my brain and I've been binge drinking since. Wow. It's been about nine months of nonstop drinking, morning, day, and night, and it fucking sucks to say the least. I have to see my PO today at 3.30, and hopefully he can point me in the right direction for some help. He already knows somewhat of my situation. I've been going to meetings the past few days, but I've been fucked up so people don't really want me there, which is understandable. I never thought I'd say this, but treatment, here I come. Dave, you're doing an amazing job, and this podcast has helped me more than you'll ever know. We at least... I... Well, at least I revel in the stories of the past because it reminds us of just how much shit we used to be. What's that saying? Two steps forward, one step back. Just make sure you make it back. Something like that. I'll email in 30 days or whatever and let you know I'm still alive. Love you, Dave. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles. And she said, feel free to use my name if you read this on the air. So her name is Becca. There you go. Thanks, Becca. Thanks, Becca, and good luck. We hope it goes so well. Becca She's in feel, treatment now, right? Um, well, she said she was going. She was going today, which is when she sent this. Which I think she sent this yesterday, right? No, she sent this about a week ago. So yeah, she should. Hopefully, she's in treatment. I'm sure she's in treatment. I'm sure her PO helped her again. It sounds like she's a good PO. Like she wasn't scared of him or her putting her in jail. So that's good. Right. That's a, I mean, I, that's a very heartwarming email. And I don't I mean, want to... That's an interesting email, too, because of all the Suboxone debate and discussion on this podcast. And she's kind of a good example of she probably should have still been on the maintenance dose. Then she went down to 0.5 milligrams and started binge drinking ever since. You know, it does make you want to weigh out Your the options. pros and cons. Like, is binge drinking every day and being on no Suboxone better than being on a maintenance dose of Suboxone and doing nothing else and being a functional member of society? Right. And, and, and Dopey Nation, yeah. you should know that Linda, Linda worked in a, a treatment for many years and she saw a lot of this stuff. Would you, you saw a lot of people. Well, I worked in an outpatient drug treatment program and I worked very closely with the, pers- the psychiatrist who worked in the, in the, program whose sole purpose was to prescribe Suboxone. So my role was to kind of help him with that program. And it was really fascinating because there was definitely a lot of people coming to the program because they wanted Suboxone. And um, their their goal wasn't really to be clean. Their goal was to use the Suboxone to kind of not get sick. Not get sick or to be on Suboxone for a while. And then they could use heroin again and get really hot. I mean, there was lots of reasons for wanting to box them that wasn't necessarily to change their life for the better. Um, but what the program did that I liked was before he would prescribe anyone Suboxone, he would give them a drug test. And if they had Xanax in their systems, um, he would not give them the Suboxone because they're, that's a lethal combination. So they had to have nothing in their system. I don't think he cared about weed, but they had to have nothing in their system, and we had to drug test them for No a opiates, no benzodiazepines. And um, and then he would give them, you know, their 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 suboxone, and then the people on the suboxone had to be in a suboxone support group, and the sole purpose of this program was to eventually 
wean them off the Suboxone right. while they're in, in a program. Did you so it wasn't like you can just come and get your Suboxone over and over and over. They had to work with counselors and be in a group with other people in Suboxone to get off the Suboxone. You know, and that, so there was a there was a goal for them to be completely clean. Um, but if people were re- and but it was amazing, we would see like this woman wrote, there would be a drop in the dosage, and we'd have uh, they would disappear, or there'd be a relapse, or right. there'd be. I mean, so it was. It's very it's very sensitive. People are very sensitive to the Suboxone dosage changing. Right, and that's also why like the number one thing is consistency. Like recently, we had a. Uh, a guy from my high school who works in a methadone clinic now talking about people who are on low doses of methadone for a long time and that it's the consistency and the not using that makes that so much more palatable than say Becca's binge drinking or or like you get off of a of a maintenance dose and then all of a sudden you're using you know right. which it's like it's a slippery slope you know i i i always said that i wasn't for that stuff but that was also because in my experience whenever i took you know, when I was on methadone, I used, or when I was, you know, I only took Suboxone if I couldn't get dope. You right. know what I mean? Like I never took anything as prescribed. It you just... have so you have people coming in who have had like, you know, had been Narcan like three or four times, and they were just going to, you know, and it's like harm reduction. I I do believe it. I do believe in it, and isn't doesn't them being on even a high dose of Suboxone beat? Shooting up heroin and and you know so it's it's a whole it's a whole thing but I definitely believe in harm reduction, um, with regards to to a very dangerous drug like heroin. I don't necessarily believe in harm reduction with like some other some other things like what, um, you know like like the whole idea of like I'll only take two bong hits and not four that kind I, of harm I, reduction. I do I do think to, to it, it, you can get carried away with it to the point where it's just an excuse to keep using. Yeah, I love that aspect. Do you know what I mean? I love that aspect yeah. of harm reduction. Right. I, I remember I'd, I'd had a list. Like, I'm only going to take three Xanax today instead of six, and I'm only going to take... I'm just going to... I'm only... Right. I'm yeah. going to take 10 bong hits instead of 30, and I'm only going to... You know, I'm only going to shoot dope in the morning. Right. You know, but whatever. Um, I think uh, the, the point of, you know, whatever you guys want to do, you're going to do. You know, the, the idea is to try to enjoy your life. And, uh, you know, and I say this, you know, just because I like to say it, that my life has never been better uh, in total sobriety. And I never expected that as a drug addict. I just never expected it. You know, I heard people say it and I didn't expect that was going to happen for me. But it did. Um, you know. Uh, but everybody's path to recovery looks different. And I see people saying that a lot, you know, even in like Dopey Nation, people will say that. Everybody's path is different. They say what? They say everybody's path is different or that their life has never been better? Um, all of it. But, you know, I think the key is no matter what path you take, whether you use the 12 steps, whether you don't, whether you use Suboxone, whether you don't, whether you, you know, smoke, smoke some weed so you don't use harder drugs, you know, whatever your process is, as long as you are on a road to recovery or you're on a road that's leading you to a way of living a better, healthier life, you're doing the right thing. As long as it's something that you're thinking about, talking about, processing, it's in your on your radar. That's that's all you can do. And when you get too crazy, Dave's making faces. Like when you get too crazy, saying abstinence is the only way. Well, you're going to lose a lot of people. I'm not saying that abstinence is the but only way. But that's a whole. That's you, a big debate. I guess right? what I, what all I'm saying is that like you can say you're on a road, 
and you're going to say, I mean, this is just something that I've kind of discovered or, or learned the hard way, which is mm-hmm. you could say you're on a road someplace. You know, I'm going to get clean but eventually. Never get, what if you never yeah. get there? Like Todd. That's your life. Todd, right? I mean, Todd, Todd that's always true. thought he could smoke pot forever, and Todd, Todd thought eventually he'd stop doing dope. And I don't know what Chris thought, you know, but, but neither of them got the chance to discover what their life would be because they fucking got fentanyl and died. Right, right. Um, but... You know, that's that's the deal with this thing. Forget quality of life. Your life could just end, you know? So it's scary and it's real. What's that? You want to be done? No, I have to be at the bus stop in four minutes. Four minutes? Oh, Jesus Christ. All right. Well, it was great having you on. Um, I had a lot, can do this later tonight. I have a lot more ground to cover. Well, Dave's upset because we talked about all this serious stuff and he didn't get enough laughs. No, I had good. I had a good time. It was nice having you on. I, I thought she comes in at three forty-five. People start walking over at three thirty. Well, you want to talk to Dave? The, not caring about our daughter and her bus. I can't All stand. You care about his dopey. I don't like the bus stop community. It makes me incredibly Dave uncomfortable. Dave has a lot of anxiety at the bus stop. I don't like it. it makes he me uncomfortable. He wants everybody to like. Nobody's he happy to see me. Should be like the dopey nation. Like he walks to the bus stop and everyone's like, "Dave, our leader." I just want them to say hello. They don't say. They don't even look at me. <laughs> it's like they say hi to me. Well, I'm not surprised. Well, um, you can't expect everybody to like praise you everywhere you go. I don't expect. I just want a hello. How about even a head nod? Raise your eyebrows but, at but, me. But Anything. then I ask you if you been if you say hello to them and you say no. No, I don't like those people. Well, so which which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Listen, before you go, you don't want to do uh, <laughs> the Bodine thing. We, I would love to do the Bodine thing, but we have to be at the bus stop in three minutes. How about the fact that Artie Lang is out of treatment, looking good, looking good. Even Linda Artie, said he's I, looking I good. I think Artie Lang is very handsome. I hope somebody gives him a better nose. I'm sure that will happen. It's so, I mean, give me a break. Like how, in this day and age, you can't like fix that thing? Linda, do you think, prediction. But yes, he is handsome. He's very handsome. He has very nice eyes. Do you think, Linda, that his eyes are nicer than mine? I think you guys have very similar eyes. All right, just relax. No, but you do. Okay. Can somebody make one of those pictures where you put the eyes next to They don't to see my eyes. They just see the dopey. Oh, that's true. Would you predict <laughs> that Artie Lang will be back on dopey again or back in treatment again first? What is your prediction? Treatment. You say Artie's back in treatment before he's back on yes. dopey. Dopey Nation, what do you think? Will Artie Lang come back on Dopey first or be back in treatment, jail, or die? I think part, I can imagine part of Artie's um, recovery work is to stay away from Dave. Yeah, I could see that too. I could see his counselor saying, stay away, stay away from that and call, call your sponsor if Dave reaches out. The second Artie got out, okay, first of all, the day that Artie got out, I had it in my head that I was going to get Artie to come to DopeyCon. So I started reaching out to people that I knew who knew Artie to try to talk to the treatment center to chaperone Artie to DopeyCon. See, that, that's so selfish. That was my plan. I thought it'd be good for him. It'd be good to commune with the recovering community. Anyway, on the same day, he gets let out of treatment, mm-hmm. um, which just seemed blew my mind. You know? and Are you happy for him? Listen, I just, I hope he can, uh, you know, I hope he has a nice life. I just, I hope he's happy. I, I'd lo- you know, I don't know Artie. I met him, I met him a handful of times. Uh, I hope he's happy. I hope he can have a happy life. I hope he can enjoy recovery. I hope he can find himself. You know, that's what I hope. And I hope he comes back on the show because I love him. I want him back on. All right, goodbye. So, unfortunately, I did not get to finish the show with Linda. 
and I found myself in Manhattan. And maybe fortunately or unfortunately, my very sweet father was home. And uh, here he is, back on the show, fresh from Eastern Europe. Yes. So how are you, Dad? I'm tired. This, this traveling is really tough on me. I'm not wa- easy. I have a question for anyone in the Dopey Nation who has any aging parents, and they watch their parents lose their minds in front of their eyes. It's right in, Write in an email. And everyone thinks I'm too abusive to you, but I think I'm just the right amount. Personally. I think no. I think you're way too abusive. But I am losing a little bit of memory. That's for sure. Memory is just a uh, memory. What is it, the computer has memory and it has the ability to processing speed. I think you've lost processing speed and now memory is slipping too. I, I made this presentation yesterday about giving a new course at school, and after the, after I did it, I really forgot what I said to them. I don't I don't remember exactly how I how I spoke. How and you phrased said, it? Yes. I, Dad, I forget everything. I don't remember anything, anything. And, and, and I'm young, and I'm scared, to be honest with you. Well, maybe you abused your brain too much. Maybe that was the problem. So tell us about your trip to Poland. He went to Poland to, to, to retrace his roots and make it brief. Nobody really cares about this. Yeah, well, uh, the dopey nation should know about Auschwitz and Birkenau. I mean, it was a pretty horrible, horrible place. And I thought I wouldn't be too emotional about it, but 1.1 million Jews were killed there. So, uh, uh, and uh, I guess lots of uh, my mother's family died. I don't know if they died at Auschwitz, but they certainly died in Poland. So this was an uplifting was, trip? Yeah, was, did, you have, did you have any fun on your trip? Yeah, kielbasa and pierogi. So you, you saw the, 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 the sites where uh, millions of uh, our people were killed, and then you ate Polish sausage and dumplings. Correct, and also went to Schindler's factory. And uh, what do they make nowadays over there? It's it's it doesn't it's a exist. museum. It doesn't okay. exist. Okay. It's a museum. They're it's not making- fact, It's not even in the same building. But it's a it was a anyway. It's not an easy trip, but I did it, and I I guess I'm happy that I did it because uh, it it uh, it was moving. Yes. Anything else you want to share about that? About oh, the trip? Well, no. okay, forget the trip. You, I know you. you yeah. Yeah, I actually realized that since I don't think I've heard a review from you about the show in, in a month. You haven't mentioned the show. You used to call me after the episodes to say one way or the other. What this tells me is you haven't liked it lately. Um, well, the, who would you have? The last week, that, that lady, that woman? Yeah, uh, the wacko, the alien school, yeah, Jessa Reed. Well, I, I didn't want to use the term wacko. Well, that but, was your term I'm giving you. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I said that? Well, right? that's what you were thinking when you were listening. Well, I mean, ooh, give me a break kind of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, science is important, but um, but uh, I guess it's, it's important to have evidence and proof about things that you believe in. I think that's important. And uh, anyway, so she was interesting. I guess a lot of people thought she was interesting. She, 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 she cut a, a wide swath into the Dopey Nation. And also my dad was asking this morning oh, yeah. about the, uh, the Dopey Nation Reddit war. What is that nonsense? I don't believe... I it's mean, a civil war within the Dopey Nation. I, I think that's terrible. I think it's absolutely awful. So you're, you're on the Facebook side of the thing. No, I'm on the no war side of the you're thing. You're on peace. I'm on peace, peace for everybody. I, I was saying earlier to Linda that you shouldn't mess with the, uh, the Reddit group because the Reddit group are like the Taliban of the Dopey Nation. Well, that's you, they're, why? Because they're, they're, they? they're anonymous. They're without a country. They strike without knowing they're going to strike. And they don't give a fuck about what happens. Really? So I, mean, I don't understand that. Why do they? You are do- a person who's actually never 
suffered at their hands like I have and the Dopey Nation has. Well, I'm glad so about me that. And the Reddit thank, group, thank you, Reddit. Me and, me and the Reddit group are finally at peace. Um, what you like? Did you like Aurora's? Did you like the 200th yeah. episode? What do, you, what do you have to say? Oh, no, the 200th episode was uh, very moving. I mean, it was... Uh, you, listen, you know, uh, missing Chris was is a big deal because... Uh, it's a, it's it was awful. You know, he's sitting in this in this apartment, and you know, and uh, and and I really did enjoy criticizing both of you when you started this thing. It was fun. He thought it was funny too. <laughs> I had a dream last night about Chris. I had a dream that um that he was kind of somewhere between dead and alive. He was dead, but he seemed alive. But he came up to me. It was a nice dream. He like yeah. visited me in the dream, and he was like, "Oh, I heard you're doing an event," mm. and he was very like. I could tell he wanted to be there. You know, it was weird because I don't usually subscribe to these kinds of things. But it was like it was uh, it was sweet, and it's obviously terrible that he can't be there. But somebody who also might equally be terrible that he's going to be at DopeyCon is you. Oh yeah, this what you you want me to speak at this? At, I know I know that you're going to need to speak, so I'm giving you the opportunity. Oh well, I'll I'll come up with something. I'll come up with something. So how is it going? What's happening with that? Is it are you organized with this or uh, I'm totally buttoned up and organized. You you're buttoned up, but everything is top secret. The only speaker that I confirm is you. Oh, then I better say something. Oh, I can also <laughs> confirm that Bob Forrest is not coming to DopeyCon. It turns out it was his son's birthday, but he forgot. Oh, all right. So no Bob Forrest, but you and then a bunch of special guests. And you're saying it was sold out? Sold out within eight hours. But there might be a few more seats. But don't, let's not talk about that. Let's move on. Um, Do you want to read the email that you will relate to or do you want to hear the voicemail that you won't? Your pick. Uh, Do the voicemail. Okay. Hey, Dave and Dopey Nation. Um, My name's Brian. I am living in Mississippi. I'm actually from Mississippi. Um, I have been thinking about moving back to Los Angeles. I've been thinking about calling in with this Dopey story, and I decided today's the day. It's raining out. Uh, Hopefully you can hear me uh, pretty good. I'll check it before I send it in, of course. But... um, So here it is. Here's my dopey story. So I'm originally from Mississippi. Uh, As soon as I graduated college, I got out of here. Um, I was an actor, and I uh, went on tour, and I moved to New York City. I lived in New York for about 12 years. And, you know, I'm gay. Um, I used a little in college, but, you know, for me, it was really slow and progressive. And I, I was in this really toxic relationship and struggling in New York. And eventually I was like, you know what? I got to get out of New York. New York's the problem. So I moved to L.A., which uh, was really the worst geographic cure I could have possibly attempted. So I'm living in L.A. And actually things were pretty good at first. I was working in a restaurant, uh, doing well. I was maintaining. So I was like drinking. Uh, I remember I was trying really hard to only drink two drinks a day, uh, massive drinks <laughs> sometimes. And that lasted for a little while. Um, and then, and I'm, I'm sure you straighty, you straight people do this sort of thing, um, I decided, you know what, I want to do some coke and get fucked. So I, uh, I re- went on Craigslist, I don't know why I didn't go on Grindr, that would have probably made a little more sense, but I get on Craigslist and I find this dude who's like, you know, I'm, I don't have any coke, but I've got some meth, um, are you cool with using meth? And I had done meth in New York and, you know, I just remember being up for a long time and, you know, it didn't really do much for me. So I thought it'd be cool. So I go to this dude's house, I do meth, and I am hooked. 
Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was, I mean, you know, I was fully using alcohol, you know, but, um, but once I did meth in LA, you know, that was, I remember I did it in October and by February I was homeless and jobless and penniless, pretty much. I uh, was couch surfing. I was doing whatever it took to get more. And my best friend in New York, he hooked me up with his brother who was living in Redondo Beach. And I was sleeping on his couch and I got another good restaurant job. I just couldn't hold a job. You know how it is. I was getting tips. As soon as I'd get tips, I'd go use. I wouldn't show up to work. You know, the endless cycle. So. I ended up, he kicked me out. I came home. I was in such psychosis. I remember his roommates, uh, they were talking to me in one language, and I was somehow able to, like, hear inside their head. You know, total psychosis. But it felt so real at the time. Um, And Brandon, he ended up kicking me out, kicked me to the curb. And I only had my pillow, which was this uh, pillow with this red jersey T-shirt pillowcase, my car keys... And I went to my car and I started driving. And I remember the street signs were talking to me. They were like, turn here, turn here, don't turn around. I don't remember all the details, but I somehow, I I parked and I was like, fuck this. And my windows were down and I remember throwing my keys in but no, no, ah, I thought about throwing my keys in the car and I decided to keep them. So. I end up wandering the streets of Redondo Beach or wherever I was. I wasn't really sure where I landed. And I first went up to a police station. I was going to go in there and ask for help. But instead, I went to a 7-Eleven. And I remember being in there, and all of a sudden, I had this crazy thought. You know, all these people here are pedophiles. i got to get out of here. It's crazy. Um, but I don't know why I thought that. So then I end up going into a laundromat. And right before I went into the laundromat, I felt like my throat was closing up. And I was like, Brian, you're in psychosis. This is just psychosis. But I felt like the world was closing in on me, which is kind of funny because it was in a way, but uh, I went in and I said, can I have some water? I need water. And these sweet Asian people, I don't know if that's relevant to the story, but they were so sweet, handed me water, and then all of a sudden, when this is ironic considering I had been using for days, was convinced that they had put GHB in my water, and I just wanted to come down. So I, of course, do the, the... the obvious thing and throw the water on them and run out and then I go up to this lady she's in a Mercedes and I remember just being like help me help me help me and I was harassing her I mean it was bad and eventually the cops came and ambulance came and I remember they took a bunch of people I had super meth strength it took a ton of people to get me strapped down in that ambulance and at that point I had an IV'd and I had that crazy idea that you know I was better because I only hit the pipe it was fucking nonsense but I ended up uh, they put the IV in me I was like please don't do that I don't do that I don't do it that way I don't slam I think it's what we called it back then but I got to the hospital and I got strapped down in leather straps and I remember I tried to convince the dude I call him the bouncer but he was just like this big security guy to let me go to the bathroom and then the worst part I remember I was so fucked up on meth they had to put a catheter in me and uh, I remember being totally aroused well probably not physically aroused this is Beth we're talking about but uh, I was so it was really embarrassing so they pumped me full of Ativan it was awful Um, and then I come to 
I, I woke up and I'm like, you can take the straps off me. And they finally did. And, you know, the doctor's like, do you remember anything? And unfortunately I did. But somehow uh, it was never the drugs. I feel like I felt like I had a nervous breakdown. So the crazy shit is I then go back to the hotel. I have no clothes, just the clothes I've been wearing. So I take my pillow, which I had, I was carrying with me the whole time. And I took the pillowcase off and I went to the front desk and I said, do you have some scissors? And I made a shirt, a tank top, out of that red jersey t-shirt pillowcase. So I called my drug dealer. I said, like, you've got to help me. So um, I manipulated my parents to give me some CVS gift card, which I sold to him. And, you know, the cops are there. I'm like, y'all got to help me find my car because I've lost my car. And the cops are like, where's your dope man? Which, of course, he was in there. I don't know how I didn't end up arrested. It was a miracle because I somehow, um, my parents were like, you got to come home. And then... Uh, I ended up coming back to Mississippi, and there are other bits of that story. I, I don't want to go on too long, but I ended up stuck in Phoenix for a few days, and, you know, I'd been with my drug dealer filming some crazy stuff that I hope I never see on Pornhub, because um, I was wearing some wrestling outfit, weighing 140 pounds, but, you know, anyway, the happy ending to that story is that I did get it get back to Mississippi. I ended up IVing meth, um, and you know, it sucked, but also it was a miracle because it got me, um, I feel like I hit bottom in LA and bounced all the way to a new bottom in Mississippi, and uh, that was July 2014. I was in treatment in October, and I've been clean ever since, since October 27, 2014. Um, yeah, I, you know, my recovery is great, but I tell you, finding Dopey has been incredible for me. Um, I don't know what it was really like before. I've only been listening since This American Life. Um, and I, I did listen to the episode when Chris died, and it broke my heart. Um, it breaks my heart. This is the, you know, drugs are killing people. And, you know, even though I wasn't using opioids, um, I, I was headed to death as well. So um, thank you, Dave. Thank you for the stickers. Thank you for the podcast. Um, for all, I'll be the gay contingent. You know, you got to have some gay dopey stories every once in a while, Dave. But uh, I really appreciate it. Toodles for Chris. Uh, keep fighting the fight. Thank you, Brian. That's an amazingly crazy dopey story. And my dad could really relate to every, every aspect, right, Dad? I, I didn't understand most of it. But I said, Dad, what do you think about, about that part? He goes, you, Brian was saying something about meth, and my dad's like, what's Bedford? So I don't think, I don't think he it, absorbed any of that story. What did you get out of that story? Uh, the ending. The ending was the best part. What was that? He, he was clean, and he was uh, thanking Dopey. Uh, and and what, do you, what, do you, what do you think, Dad? Why do you think that Dopey has this impact on the addict community? What, what is it to you that you think that Dopey impacts drug addicts? I think it may be because it's honest and uh, because they have the ability to hear things that they can relate to and see some good endings from it, uh, plus the horrible endings. But... Um, but it's real, and uh, I think it, it creates a community. I mean, it, it creates a group of people that uh, that have something in common that they're really trying trying to fight and uh, and 
get rid of and move on, and and they are trying to help other people. I think that's what that the Dopey Nation thing. I don't know what these Reddit people are doing, but but, but the Dopey Nation don't people mess, seem to be don't mess with the Reddit people. I, I don't understand that. I mean, anyway, you you you're going all over the place. That's all right. I, I want to get back to to DopeyCon on a scale of one to ten. How excited are you uh, to go to this thing? On a scale of one to ten. Uh, nine and a half. Wow, you're very excited. Why are you so excited? Uh, I think it's great. What, what's great about it? Uh, that these people are showing up in, uh, actually, it's pretty much my neighborhood. Uh, which it's, very, hope, it's very convenient. Uh, yeah, when he was blaming New York for, for, for the drug, that's... that's Who uh, was? The, Brian? The, the, the Brian. I don't think he was blaming New well, York. Well, you're right. Because it's certainly, he could be anywhere, and then it's going to be a problem. How about the irony of the fact that DopeyCon is going to be held... Uh, by the same treatment center that uh, I, that you sent me to so many years ago. Yeah, well, why is that irony? I mean, it seems to me that these people, that Mountainside was very much involved in hearing about everything. So they didn't they suggest it or something? They did, but I mean, yeah. all in all, who could predict? You know? Oh yeah, ten years ago, I have I have a real. I'm gonna maybe I'm gonna tell that funny story at DopeyCon about that day that you called to tell me about. Uh, by the way, Dad, uh, I'm all messed up and. Tell uh, Why don't you tell the story now? No, I can't tell. Just tell the story. Just tell the story. You never tell a good story. Tell a little story. Come on. Tell a nice little story. Uh, this, then I'm not going to have anything to say. Don't Nobody, no, there's a million people that listen to this, and nobody's going to be there. So just give us a little. Okay, you want to save it for DopeyCon? No, no. Now, see, now you ruined it. That, that's it. You set everything up, and then all of a sudden you change your mind. Well, you again. make them salivate for it at the thing. Well, I wasn't going to. But all right, here's the story. All right, the story is, is that. You said I have a story that I'm not going to tell. I said you should tell it. Then I, I built up anticipation. and then, It's not going to be such a great story now, all of a sudden. I, I, I'm sure it isn't, but let's hear it. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, I'm, in, I'm in Florida with my dear friend, Nikki, who is uh, a real Christian, a real w- wonderful, wonderful uh, woman. And we're in Florida, and we go to this nature center. And we're in this nature center uh, where there's boardwalks, you know, there's beautiful birds and animals. Uh, animals everywhere and of course alligators alligators in the water this is florida and she's walking along and she has uh, her favorite hat on and as she's walking along for some reason uh i don't know the wind blew and her hat flies off her head and goes right into the water and uh, i don't know well nikki's from england so maybe she didn't know about this so she's climbing over the fence to go to go into the water to get the hat and i said whoa wait a minute there's alligators right there what are you doing so she stops and i grab some kind of a stick and i'm trying to grab the hat with the stick and as i'm grabbing the hat the stick breaks and the hat sinks into into the swamp sinks into the water and the hat's gone and, and Nikki is really devastated. She's upset. Okay. So the next day, um, we're driving, I don't know where we're going. We're driving to Key Biscayne, and I'm sitting in the car, and the phone rings. And, uh, of course, it's good old David on the other end of the phone. And he was, uh, he was a manager of Katz's Restaurant. And, uh, oh, he, I owe Dad. I, I lost my job. I'm, I'm all messed up. Uh, it's a disaster. Uh, I want to go to rehab. Uh, I, need, uh, I need money to go to rehab. And, and I, said, I said, all right, so where is he? He says, oh, it's, it's a mountainside. And I said, okay, uh, do they accept credit cards? And he said, yeah, yeah. I'll- I actually 
actually paid for the detox that time, though. Oh, wonderful. Super. That's really wonderful. Thing. It was yeah. all my money I paid for the detox. Yeah, this yeah. story, so what the fuck was the point uh, of the okay. alligator part of the story? Time. Yeah, 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 you're interrupting. Okay. So I'm sitting there, and here's my son who has relapsed on whatever the, ever he relapses on. He's going back. He's going back. To, to, to rehab and Nikki is sitting next to me in the car and I hang up the phone and she heard the whole story and she says what are you complaining about uh, about your son going to rehab I lost my bat yesterday that's what she said <laughs> yeah that's not bad okay now we're not going to read this email because it's too much time forget the email instead it's oh, a good email that's okay instead you're going to read this really quick come over here quick oh. quick 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 you love reviews right why would you say that? Because there's one guy who did a terrible This one. Which one? This one. Yeah, that's the one. Read it. Yeah, this, well, all right. I really want to love this podcast because this kind of stuff is right up my alley. You have to, you have to say who the review is from. My, my name is Lindsay. Yeah. Is that correct? All right, I really want to love this podcast podcast because this kind of stuff is right up my alley. But one of you ruins each episode. You are constantly cutting off the other guy, and it's really irritating and hard to follow the stories. With all the interruptions, you're causing it to be almost chaotic, and it's super frustrating. Yeah, I don't know what she's talking about. Well, the, the answer is the, the answer is is that uh, is that she was listening to the beginning of the shows, the glory she, days of the she, show. She, when I when I was agreeing with her four hundred percent and saying to you that that you keep interrupting Chris and and, uh, and you never break. get and you get that's a, what made, never, that was the magic. <laughs> you never get the stories out, and you almost did the same thing today. Anyway. Everybody misses the. I wish the show was like how it used to be, and then, yes. then it was I interrupted interrupted too much so you well, can't win with these well, hey, so this Lindsay, she's gonna find obviously she's gonna be shocked when she keeps go is there i guess it's just she that when she keeps going and discovers that you know chris is not around for you to interrupt them anymore all so right now now i'm gonna read this one which i'm sure you've read um, yes dopey is dope five stars by totes wild ride Caught wind on dave and chris's work through this american life i've been hooked since day one well, obviously not since day one because he caught the wind uh, this American life. Anyway, I have been hooked since day one. It was great from the passing of Chris moving forward and also from the very beginning to the loss. I highly recommend listening from the start. From my standpoint, a person who is afflicted with addiction, this show keeps me going. My past is so dark and I know I am not alone. A lot of what I make it through was funny and I'm glad Dave, Chris, and the Dopey Nation agree. These stories are who we were, and telling them reminds us that we don't want that chaos anymore. I especially love Dave's dad and his role in this podcast. Have you read this, Dad? Keep going. He looks stunned, my dad. (laughs) Um, Blah, blah, blah. Now that I am older, I watch others that are younger than me suffer, friends and family. I know this pain, too, which Alan reminds us is so very real. The suffering of an addict is heart-wrenching. Alan's love is genuine and endless. You should see my dad staring in the distance very heroically right now. Um, Which is needed in every addict's life. Judgment and excessive favors are no good in any relationship. Lines must be drawn. However, love must always be present. I feel that love from Alan. I'm glad this guy feels that love from you. (laughs) You guys are great. 
Dave, my heart is bleeding for you. The struggle, the loss, and the darkness. I'm here with you, brother. We all are. Please, please keep doing what you do. I patiently wait the drop of the podcast each week. It's always thrilling and never a letdown, even when Chris thinks it's the worst. Stay strong. That's great. That's Totes Wild Ride. I yeah, know you'd like that. Terrific. Um, so... In a couple weeks, me and Ray are heading down to West Virginia, but we don't have time. The show's getting too long. We have a whole big segment after this. So, all right, okay, uh, yeah. So, my dad wants me to teach. My dad said, "Oh, when you go to West Virginia, you should teach some musicians how to play good so bad." Yeah, of course, and they should sing it. Yeah, you. Why should, shouldn't I? And do the it? other song. I mean, of course, you should do it. They should be in the back. You know, what do you call, what do you call the band that backs up? Ugh. The backup band. Ugh. Ugh, I'm glad you guys like him so much. You hear this all day. What about the other song that I that I thought was even better? You tell me, Dad. Something about that. Oh, your phone's ringing. Anyway, up next, um, there's a guy named Ben Anderson who runs something called the Park City Songwriter Festival, and he invited me to go to this festival. He even was he even volunteered to fly me down there and pay for a hotel room. What do you think of that? Was anybody on the phone? No, nobody was on the phone. We, 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 tried, to, we tried to disconnect the phone <laughs> last time. It. It's, it's impossible <laughs> to disconnect the phone. It's unbelievable. <laughs> no, it's not good. So this is Ben Anderson uh, from the Park City Songwriter Festival, also from the incredible organization Send Me a Friend, which basically sets up free sober companions for musicians. We had Anders Osborne on the show oh, a couple months right. ago to talk about this. So here is Ben. Thank you, Dad. You're welcome. And uh, goodbye. All right. So I have the distinct pleasure of having Ben Anderson on the phone. Uh, would you, what would you say? How would you describe yourself in the first place, Ben? Would you say guitar player, songwriter, lawyer, recovering person, heroin addict? What would you say? Um, yes, uh, to most all of these things. Um, certainly um, a, a husband and a dad and uh, someone who's in long-term sobriety and very, very grateful for my opportunity to be involved in the, in the live music industry and involved in the recovery industry and to match those two up. So that seems to be my, the hats that I wear currently. All right, right on. And just so you guys know, um, Ben worked uh, works with Anders Osborne, who was on Dopey a little while ago, with the Send Me a Friend Foundation, which is this amazing program, uh, basically for addicts in recovery to have people go to gigs with them, right? That's the basis of the program? Yes, exactly. Anders was in early recovery and uh, was having a tough time on the road. He wrote a song called Send Me a Friend. And if you listen to those words, that was the genesis of him coming back home at some point saying, man, I could just use somebody on the road to be there as a uh, sober companion, if you will, both you know before and during the gigs. And so he met with Bill Taylor, who started uh, Trombone Authority Foundation and Tipitina's Foundation and said, you know, we got to do something. So they reached out to me and we, uh, you know, we formed a board and a 501c3 and uh, we have over 4,000 people around the country who are the quote unquote friends from Send Me a Friend that we can send out when we get requests from artists or road, manager or road managers or whomever to send them out to virtually any city in the United States to be with them and to provide them with sober companionship while they're out on the road. It's amazing. The best thing about it to me is that it's, it's free. You know, it's like nobody, it's not, any, nobody's getting money out of it. It's just strictly as a support uh, situation, which is the coolest thing to me. 
Yeah, and you know, we are partnered up and do a lot with um, the Grammys Music Cares Foundation. We've done work with Harold Owens, the uh, senior director there. And of course, uh, the Music Cares Foundation does something very similar. Of course, they incorporate also medical care as well as recovery resources and help provide funding for rehab and things like that. So it was a natural um, sort of collaboration that we've had with them for quite some time, and we're honored to be working with them. One of the things that we've done, Dave, too, is to expand not only helping with those who might be in early recovery or anybody that's out on the road that's uh, part of the, a touring music industry that has you know, drug and alcohol issues, but because of all the mental illness um, and uh, a lot of the you know, losing more and more musicians and people in the music industry um, to suicide and just you know a dual diagnosis of mental illness and substance abuse, we are expanding our mission to also include a, a long-term study and doing a lot of research on true rates of suicide, mental illness, and substance abuse in the music industry to try to bring awareness with real good data to also then provide more funding and more resources for those not only with drug and alcohol, but as we often see, uh, illness that is wrapped into you know mental illness as well. Right. The co-occurring disorder is crazy sad. Um, that's Chris Cornell kind of story that, yeah, it's just, um, it's the yeah, worst. We just lost Neil, Neil Casal a couple of weeks ago, you know, right after lock in festival, I was there, my wife and I were right in front of him listening to him play. And two days later, you know, he's dead by suicide. And we just, we want to be there for our music industry to let them know that they aren't alone, that there is help. We are, we and others are here for them and we just don't want to lose more people. There is help and there is hope. Well, that's awesome, and we have we have a pretty strong community in the Dopey Nation, and I think you guys who listen should really, I mean, you get to see free shows, you get to meet cool people, and you can do service this way. I think it's an amazing way to help out. Um, so I just wanted to bring that to your guys' attention. Um, ben is also chairing, would you say you're chairing? What's your relationship with this Park City Songwriting Festival, Ben? I, I am one of the three founders or owners or producers or whatever who uh, came up with this idea with my two partners. And so we are we are running the first uh, ever uh, Park City Songwriter Festival here in Park City, Utah, which is this week, September 13 and 14. So it's this weekend. If you guys are near Park City in Utah, you should go to this festival. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Anders Osborne is going to play. The North Mississippi All-Stars are going to play. Mark Broussard is going to play and the great john popper is going to play absolutely and uh we have um you know over 50 singer songwriters and musicians who will be here with uh you know 60 number one hits 75 top 20 hits uh 20 grammys um numerous uh, acm awards cma awards songwriter of the year awards album of the Year awards and even songwriter of the century award so we are we are really really uh, chock full of amazing award-winning artists dude are you a songwriter too ben I am. Um, I would say that none of my songs have ever made it anywhere, but, you know, I, I started a band when I was at Vanderbilt many years ago, 35 years ago, and uh, our band is more of the cover uh, jam band uh, genre, so we've been playing Grateful Dead and Almond Brothers and music like it for, for 35 years, and uh, and we still do. In fact, I'm going to, uh, I'm honored to be able to play with Anders and Luther and the great Chad Cromwell and his wife, Wendy Wagner, um, at the event this Friday night before the North Mississippi 
Mississippi All-Stars take the stage. So I'm going to not only be uh, running around helping make sure people are uh, on their downbeats and uh, that everyone's happy at the festival, but uh, I'm actually going to be able to grab the bass and, and do a little jamming as well. Well, good for you, man. I, I know you don't know this, but I am an amateur songwriter myself. I've written some some kind of classic tunes, and um, I'm also a harmonica player, and I grew up in Manhattan, and when I was a kid, I saw John Popper play at this shitty little bar on 13th Street and uh, 2nd Avenue called Nightingale's. Tiny, tiny, tiny room before Blues Traveler was big. They were actually opening for a band in my high school, and... Um, Fucking, I was like, I, I, I was, I'd always dispel that he was a great harmonica player because I wanted to be considered better than John Popper. And of course, I was on drugs. I was not better than John Popper. But it was like, you know, it was one of those things. It's one of those stories we, I'm stuck with. It's amazing with. How, what, what we can convince ourselves of when we are uh, in, the, in the throes of our addiction, right? Yeah, man. I think it's just, he is such a phenomenal player. Uh, the stuff he does, so fucking cool. Um, and do you, are, are all those those musicians who are playing the festival? Are they all in recovery? Does that is that part of it or not? Not all of them. We have a mix, and that's part of what we are. You know, part of our message here in this festival is it's unique in that we are trying to say that look, there are those of us who there are some who can. Uh, drink safely and do drink um, and go to hear live music. And then there are those who can't drink safely and choose not to that also share the love of live music. And there's no reason that we can't coexist and that you can feel comfortable in a room um, whether people are drinking or not um, and that there needs to be you know, alternative beverages other than just Coke, Diet Coke and water where you have 40 kinds of beer and 20 kinds of wine and every kind of tequila under the sun and so in partnership with um, you know, all, all of our sponsors and particularly High West Whiskey, we will have, you know, something called rocktails. And so instead of a mocktail, they're going to be called rocktails. So we'll have handcrafted non-alcoholic uh, beverages there. And um, we want people to feel comfortable whether they drink or they don't. So, yes, there will be those a number of artists who are in recovery. And then um, we will have um, send me a friend. Our board will be out here. We are sponsoring a what we call a life shop which will have Harold Owens from the Grammys yeah. doing a Q&A with Paul Williams, the president of ASCAP, also in long-term recovery. So they'll be talking about uh, recovery in the music industry, and then Anders and I and my board will be talking about what Send Me a Friend does and providing you know, resources in that regard. And then a number of our singer-songwriters um, that are going to be on the various stages are also in recovery, and they'll be able to share their stories as they, as they feel comfortable doing so. Um, um, it's a really cool, intimate songwriter in the round format during the day. So you have three singer-songwriters um, to a stage with their guitars playing each other's award-winning songs and telling the stories behind those songs. Some of those may be about recovery and some of them may not. Um, and then then we go into our, you know, more of our electric jams at night with, uh, with acts like Anders Osborne and North Mississippi All-Stars and Mark Broussard. Um, you know, and then late night we even have like DJ Logic who will be there. Who's performed with a lot of these guys I know DJ Logic from my old days In New York City Back in the day He used to go on my stupid little show I knew him well He's, 
Good awesome, guy. right? I yeah. Mean, he did uh, the Logic Project with John Popper. Um, you know, he's played with uh, members of the Grateful Dead, and including, you know, the current Dead & Company members. And um, he's played with a lot of different people and um, is well-known in the music industry. So we're psyched to have him close out the night each night. That's and, cool. Um, I love that. It's going to be a lot of fun, man. Now, something the Dopey Nation does not know is that they asked me to go to this thing. I, I could have gone for free. I mean, the Dopey Nation is very impressed when people invite me places so i need to oh, tell yeah. them that they they invited me but but linda my wife said uh i can't go because of the appalachian thing the next weekend but next year if they're so generous enough if you guys are so generous enough to, to invite me again i will definitely figure it out we want you to agree right now on the on the air that you're coming to 2020 park city songwriter festival so that all your fans can hold you to it how about that Sure, I'll come. Yeah, I'm. I'm All down. Right. I'm there. If you guys, are, if you're inviting me and and will send for me, I will. If I'm the friend, Formally invited. If I'm the friend that gets sense. sent for, I'm there. I'm there. Um, That's awesome. Now, since you are on our show, Dopey, uh, the dark comedy of drug addiction on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, I was hoping you could share a personal Dopey story with uh with the Dopey Nation. Well, my challenge is trying to limit it to one because literally we could be on here for a couple of days with uh, my crazy stories. Um, I do recall I lived in um, I went to law school at uh, at Pepperdine in um, in Malibu, so I spent a lot of time in the uh, Manhattan Beach community. And when I was in the throes in it, we had uh, I forget I was maybe turning twenty two, twenty three, and we went down to this place called the Rock and Roll Beach California Sushi Bar in Hermosa Beach. California. And um, I uh, uh, was uh, came into it already a pretty loaded on um, various things. And um, this was a two-level sushi bar. So there was one down below and then Sarah's stairs going up to the upper level that overlooked the main room. And I uh, was overserved um, uh, sake and various other things. And um, I decided it'd be a great chance for and they cranked music the whole time. And so tequila came on and I jumped up on the sushi bar and began to do the Pee Wee Herman dance nice. going across the bar and taking everyone's shots of sake and slamming those down and eating their sushi as I walked by. Then as they came to grab me to toss me out, rightfully so, I crawled up the railing to the upper level because I didn't want those folks up there not to have uh, some of my love shared with them. Went across that bar. They chased me out through the front, um, to, much to everyone in there's uh, chagrin, uh, because I'm sure they loved me being present, at, at which point I uh, found my way out onto the street, climbed up on a... Uh, a popcorn stand that had these little lights on it yeah. and I started to unscrew the Christmas lights and throw them at moving cars and I made the mistake of hitting this guy that literally looked like he could lift a roof he looked like a, a pro wrestler or something I hit his brand new Cadillac and he pulled over and uh, came out and was trying to get me to come down off the popcorn stand to fight him and uh, my friends were joined around and I jumped off in the middle of them like I was uh, stage surf diving and and uh, we get into this big brawl. The cops, get, we heard the cops coming. We all jump in the car and somehow drive away without getting arrested. Um, I was not allowed to come back to the rock and roll sushi bar, as you might expect. But every time I hear Pee Wee Herman, it does bring a smile to my face. That but is it also funny. makes me happy that I'm in recovery. 
Yeah, totally, totally. And what was uh, what was your drug of choice when you were out there? Just out of curiosity, um, you, you name it. It was, um, it was, it was. I, you know, I saw a couple hundred dead shows. So I, I was, um, if it was there and available, I consumed it in terms of psychedelics and and various other things. Um, There's a lot of things went into my mouth and up my nose that I'm glad don't go there anymore. Um, but I will, I will say that ultimately it was that the white stuff that took me down. Right, and. Um, and that, that that took me down a very long, ugly road. And um, my band was actually playing at a dead festival in August of 2007. And I'd been up for about three days and uh, it was 105 degrees. We played a set and I walked around behind my amplifier, which is where I usually kept all my goods, decided I probably needed one more. And then I woke up. I passed out cold and I woke up with a guy uh, in a wheelchair who was a monitor mixer and he was rolling next to me and putting water on my face. He was like, Hey man, you look like you could use some help and um, you, you really need help. And I thought, Here, here's a, here's a guy who's disabled in a wheelchair. Who's helping me up. Right. Uh, someone with two good legs who should be able to stand on his own. Uh, and this guy telling me, you know, you need help. So that was the, the day that I finally reached out and, um, and, and got serious about my sobriety. And that was 12 years ago on August 10th. And when you reached so, out, like, what did it look like? What did you do? Who did you ask? Well, I had been in and out of the program for seven years, um, for two, from 2000, 2007 with multiple relapses. Um, and, um, uh, I, I finally reached out to a guy who I'd known the program and just said, you know what? I surrender, man. I'd been, even after that event with the guy, I had a three day bender and finally looked in the mirror and just said, you don't have to live like this anymore. You know, I was, the pain level got so high that I finally said, I don't want this pain. This is not the way I want to live. And I was ready to die or it was either quit or die is right. the way I felt. Right. And, um, I, thankfully I picked up the phone. I called a friend of mine, Chris B and, uh, thanks to him. Uh, he became my sponsor and, um, I, I've never looked back and, uh, I poured myself into service work. You know, I went to four to five meetings a week and I had a home group in Cleveland that were uh, Cleveland, Ohio, where I lived at the time. And, um, I, uh, every Saturday morning at my home group, I showed up early, set up chairs, cleaned toilets uh emptied ashtrays and made coffee for 200 people and um shook hands and cleaned the pots and cleaned the the place and mopped floors and did what i had to and i held that job for four years um and you know that service is what finally a home group service and a great sponsor was and a loving god was what really helped me to stay on the straight and narrow and build a foundation for my uh recovery and i have a lot of great gratitude every day for it dave all right i think that's awesome since since that happened since you had the kind of revelation epiphany kind of thing has there been any relapse like was there any relapse in the beginning like how long did it take you to get into the groove of it after that 2000 to 2007, where I just was miserable, um, and then August 10, uh, 2007, I have not had a relapse since then. I have I'm not turned back, but the, the, the period of relapse was... You know, they always said at meetings, you know, your your addiction's out there in, in the parking lot doing push-ups, just waiting on you. And I was like, well, that'll never be me. I don't have to worry about that. I always uh, hated that was, phrase, Ben. That phrase always bothered me when they said yeah. that. Because everybody well, said that. Did that bother you ever, or you just think it's real? I mean, it is real, I was, but at the same time... I was so arrogant that I didn't think it would apply to me. So I was just like, I can't believe these wussies who would actually go back out. Huh? Right. You know, blah, blah, blah. Right. All of a sudden, it was true. And that's why 
it may it didn't bother me necessarily before because I think didn't think it would apply, and it didn't bother me after afterwards because it was absolutely true for me that it got it was worse and worse. Uh, I knew that there was a solution, and I chose to ignore it. And I it was the twelve steps that I was looking at, and part of those steps, the part about honesty, just can be being completely honest about the things I'd done, and to be able to then to go back to these people and to and to do my amends and do the ninth step work. I looked at that and I was like, I'll never be able to do it. I don't want to do it. And right. um, I didn't want to sit down and, and write all this stuff out and do a fourth step. And, uh, and I, you know, it's a matter of doing the hard work. And this big old guy who'd come out of prison, he was a big biker guy in one of my groups. He heard me whining about not wanting to do my fourth step. And he was like, you don't want to do it because you're scared. I was like, I'm not scared of anything. He's like, yeah, you're scared. If you weren't scared, you'd go home and write it tonight. And I was like, fuck you. I'm not scared. I got nothing to be. And I, so I went home to, you know, and he, he knew what he was doing. And I sat down and I just started writing and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And before I knew it, I came to some spots where I was in fact scared. I, there were things that I did not want to talk about things that I was ashamed, so ashamed of that I didn't want to bring forward. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, here's this big ex-con biker who knew exactly what he was talking about, and he got me to do what I needed to do. I was I was just scared that I would never have fun. I was scared that I would never that my life would not be fun, and I would be missing it forever. You know, which shockingly wasn't the case. You know, uh, it surprised yeah, me. So I thought that the friends of mine who I party with and things like that, I was like, how can I do this? Because my, I thought that my identity was, you know, so bound up in just being the craziest partier there was. I mean, I, uh, like I say, the stories are legendary about some of the crazy crap I did and how I lived through it. I don't know, but I thought that was me. It's like, well, that's just who I am. You know, I'm a drinker, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, and that's just going to be the case for me. And I realized after I got so over that those friends who relied on who were only going to be my friends because of that were not my friends in the first place um and those that did care about me had much rather had me sober and were very very much uh they were a lot happier for me being sober than they were me being a party because they tolerated me rather than embracing me and i thought it was the other way right so um yeah i i thought i'd have no fun and you know it's one of the things harold owens talks about he's like a lot of the artists that come in and he deals with out of the grammys music cares they're like, man, I'm never going to be creative again. I'm not going to be able to do the things I do without, you know, smoking pot, doing heroin, drinking tequila, whatever their drudge substance of choice is. And he says to them, if you could do all that you've done while under the influence of a chronic addiction, imagine how beautiful and awesome it's going to be when you take those challenges away from you, those hurdles away, and you're able to do it with a clear mind. I think people and, are scared they can't do it with a clear mind, like that they think that they only could do it under the influence, and not because it made them free, but almost because they need to be encumbered to be their most creative. You know, I think that's the tricky part of it. Yeah, and I would say that's true for a lot of professions. Like, you know, you mentioned I was a, a trial lawyer and uh, for almost 30 years. And, um, you know, it's a, a trial lawyers, the guys and gals who are out there trying cases and one after another, we're cowboys and we risk a whole lot. And so, you know, not surprisingly, that's one of the parts of the law business that has the highest rates of substance abuse and suicide and divorce and a lot of different things. And so um, I was in the throes of that and I thought that I, you know, that being a drinker, you know, and, and being out there doing those things was actually helping because, oh my gosh, I need, I need to have this balance because I worked so hard. I need right. to be at the bar doing 
going now. And when, but I was, you know, I was almost bankrupt. Um, I was not, you know, doing the things I needed to for my family, et cetera, et cetera. And man, literally within a week of being uh, sober and committing and surrendering, uh, some new ideas started to come to me and my career took off. And I ran one of the most successful uh, plaintiff firms in the state of Ohio and, um, you know, really ended up doing well with my practice. And so there was that, that block that I had in my music, you know, with my band only got better and better because I stopped, um, you know, using. And, um, so it's, it's such a myth that we won't be able to do this. And that's just part of the fear and the anxiety and some of the the mental illness that goes along with the depression, this codependency with our addiction that tells us if we don't do this, we can't be creative and it's bullshit. Right. No, I really, I hear you and I appreciate all that stuff. And, um, and I'm very excited for your festival Park City Songwriters Festival. It's this weekend. It's it's Saturday, right? This Saturday. It, it's Friday oh, and Saturday. But there's a kickoff show on Thursday night from five to nine. With but this Aaron this ben show. Ward. But this show isn't going to come out till Friday. Okay, well then, you know what? You will have missed the Thursday kickoff show, but you'll be so stoked to start the Songwriter Founds at 3 p.m. Mountain Time on Friday, and it's parkcitysongwriterfestival.com, and that's where all the info is. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And if you guys are anywhere nearby Park City, Utah, tonight or tomorrow, jump in your fucking car and go and look up Send Me a Friend. That's sendmeafriend.com, right, Ben? Sendmeafriend.org. Dot org, excuse um, me. Send me a friend. Five hundred one C three. So it's sendmeafriend.org for more information about our about our um, sober musicians and and uh, you know the things that we're doing with Anders Osborne and and the Send Me a Friend group. That's that's there. Sendmeafriend.org. Well, I really really appreciate you coming on, and I really appreciate the invitation. And next year, if it stands, because a lot of times I get invited to stuff, and then people decide not to keep me coming, which I don't I don't blame you if it, if it doesn't stand. But if it stands. I will come to Utah next year And I love that You can't get out of this one man We're bringing you here And so please go ahead and share with your lovely bride Linda That uh, that you're coming out So All you right. gotta block some time off Okay right on Ben Thank you so much man And we will talk soon again Thanks for having me again Peace everybody right Thank on, you man. Thanks Take care Bye bye Alright so we've come to the end of another episode of Dopey Thank you, Ben Anderson. And uh, if you guys are in Utah, go check out the Park City Songwriter Festival tonight and tomorrow, Friday and Saturday. Thank you, Linda and my dad. And, of course, the amazing Margaret Cho. Uh, DopeyCon is coming. Put on by Mountainside. Fucking the Appalachian Healing Festival. Put on by them. Uh, What's it called? Something in the Hills. Hope in the Hills. The war between Reddit and Dopey Nation Facebook page rages on. Will there ever be peace in the Dopey Valley? I hope so. But until then, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by. 
And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller City far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. Suckers make me mad and I wanna call my dad and it's all I ever had, it's all I ever had.